G'day mate, Luke Ford, and uh, today's topic is what is fascism, and I'm with Matthew Cockerell. So Matt, uh, fascism's like the, the most evil thing ever, it's like the, the biggest threat to, to America I hear. What is your understanding of fascism? What, what is fascism? Well, I think the first thing to do with regard to conversation about fascism is to stow the moralism. I mean, I'm a liberal, so I am certainly no friend of fascism, but I think the moralism can obscure historical meaning of the term. And I view fascism as a term bound to a certain time and place. I don't view it as a contemporary threat because I don't think it can exist in the contemporary era. I view it as a reaction in the early to mid 20th century against the rise of socialistic and communistic movements in Europe, essentially. That's what it is. And it took various forms under that broad guise of reaction. Um, it took a, in the broad sense, so I think we can say it was a right-wing populist movement, a, an attempt to appropriate the methods of democracy, of mass media, of modernity, for a right-wing cause. And that was a novel element of fascism because typically in, in the, if you look at the modern world, the Enlightenment world, the right had been before the fascist movements associated with um, certain social classes, not with mass politics. And that is a contribution um, in a sense of, of fascism, but uh, it's an ideology that has certain characteristics that we see in all of its manifestations uh, idolization of the state, you could even say state worship, um, a kind of a glamorization, romanticism of violence and militarism, a contempt for the left, um, and also a contempt for the bourgeois, the morality of the bourgeoisie, like their unwillingness to use violence to achieve their ends, their, um, you know, their, their desire for a warm bed and a good social standing beyond anything else. So, um, in this sense, it's, uh, uh, different. It's different than the historical right, but I think it's of the right. I agree with Paul Gottfried, and I think most uh, other um, scholars of fascism in saying it's it's of the right. It's a reaction against uh, the rise of left wing socialistic and communistic movements in Europe in the early to mid twentieth century, particularly beginning in the interwar years between the. So why is the, say, the current uh, Republican Party not, not a fascist party? Well, they're not reacting against a socialistic or communistic movement in the traditional sense. Um, you can uh, talk about people like Bernie Sanders. You can talk about people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. These are bourgeois uh, political figures. They're social democrats. They may like to call themselves communist. They are uh, not people who are going to break the law and anger power structures um, invite and, and engage in violence to get there to meet their ends right this isn't so the reaction the re, the, the reactive element uh, isn't there and also <laughs> the contemporary Republican Party for all of its uh, uh, flirtation with populism is not valorizing militarism. It's actually moving against militarism relative to where it was in the George W. Bush years. It is not uh, attacking bourgeois uh, values. There may be a whiff of uh, of some uh, affinities, but I think right wing populism is a much more um, is a much more accurate term. 
than fascism. This doesn't have the historical context of reacting against the revolutionary left movement. I, in fact, some people may say it does. That's an interesting point. But I, I, I think that Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, these are just totally different phenomena than um, the, <laughs> the Communist Party of Germany, than Rosa Luxemburg, like truly revolutionary uh, figures who threatened the existing social order. Um, you know, uh, Rosa Luxemburg threatened uh, the existing social order in Germany, right? Um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is invited to the Met. These are these are serious differences, you know. Um, so uh, I view fascism as, and, and I think uh, Godfrey agrees with me. I think um, Ernst Nolte agrees with me, who is I think regarded as one of the preeminent theorists of fascist fascism. That it's a secondary phenomenon. It's a reaction against the revolutionary left. And it uses populism. It uses some features we associate with democracy, like mass mobilization, patriotism, nationalism, some queer form of egalitarianism. I don't mean that as a cheap pun about the homosexuals and the fascist movements. Incidentally, I mean queer as a, as a different, distinct, and so on. Um, but yeah, I view it as a reactive movement against revolutionary communism, socialism. We don't have revolutionary communism and socialism. We have internet larkers. So um, because it's a secondary phenomenon the, and the primary phenomenon doesn't exist, it can't, it can't exist. And also the, the other characteristics of militarism, of um, kind of a hyper-focus on masculinity, these are not there either in the contemporary Republican Party. And uh, what about Richard Spencer? Is he a fascist? Uh, you know, he's a really hard figure to pin down um, because he, here's what's so paradoxical about Richard Spencer. He's not stupid. You listen to the guy. He's intelligent, right? He's well-read. But he engaged in ridiculously stupid behavior for over a period of years, whether it's telling baked Alaska he has a deep connection to Byzantium, uh, whether it's saying everything he says is history, um, hail Trump, Zig Heil salutes. He behaved like an internet LARPer who hasn't read a book, yet he has read and he's well-spoken. So he's a paradox in that regard. I wouldn't you say, I mean, because yes. the, the, the examples I cite are ridiculous. It's like somebody anachronist who misunderstands the past trying to anachronistically role play as having a deep connection to it. But he's not, But so it would be very, predictable if he were just a moron who's never read, but he has read, right? He's actually, he seems like someone would be interesting to talk with. Um, right. He made reprehensible statements too. We calling for genocide of Turks and violence. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with him, but I think he'd be interesting to talk to and I'd be civil talking to him because I see him as an intelligent person, but I, I don't really know what to make of his prior statements because they're so absurd, you know? But no, he's not a fascist, whether he thinks he is or not. Um, he... <laughs> He doesn't have, look, he doesn't have the populist, for, for all the, I have argued you can't be a fascist today, it's a dead movement, it belongs to a certain time and place, but he has too much contempt for regular people to be a fascist too. Fascists at least have to publicly act as if they're connected to the people, you know. So, a, the, populism is very important to it, it's a foundational characteristic. So, or inherent in nationalism is a certain kind of egalitarianism, right? If you're a nationalist, mm -hmm. the, the, what, what comes along with that is a certain type of egalitarianism because you're all part of the same nation. Yeah. Is that fair? So, you're so if, if, if somebody says that he's a white nationalist, that person is identifying with all white people. So if there's a white, so baked Alaska is part of the folk, right? 
Right. So you can't just say, oh, Bakelask is stupid. I don't identify with them. You have to say he's part of the folk. Um, same with like, if you're an American nationalist, you have to say um, Rosie O'Donnell is part of the folk or whatever, you know? So you, you can't pick and choose. There is an egalitarianism. And if you're, if you're an elitist, if you think, no, I just like smart people who've read books, which is what I think Richard Spencer is, uh, what, he, what, he, what he feels if you listen to his recent comments, um, you can't really be a fascist or populist or nationalist because you're not an egalitarian, right? You, you, you have contempt for the masses. You don't just have a paternalistic condescension. He, you have, he has a real contempt. I understand that. But on the other hand, I don't really, I don't really feel that way. Um, but, but personally, but I, he, I don't think he really could be a fascist or a nationalist. Any of these movements that invoke a kind of populism. And it could be like a classical conservative, actually, that's bound to a certain social class. Because he's like an aristocrat because he just goes off of his, I don't want to get too personal, but he like, he's like going off of his mother's, his inheritance from his mother, right? I mean, that's what he's doing. So he's kind of like a modern, a contemporary aristocrat, you know, right? And he, he, that would be his ideological predecessor more than fascism or, um, because if you look at the fascists, most of these guys come from um, either petty bourgeois or working class backgrounds, right? I mean, they're not, most of these people are not from the upper middle class or the aristocracy. Now, these people, those, those factions support fascist movements, but that's because they see them as a bulwark against the revolutionary left. But the, the kind of, the main energy is not from, is from like the uh, lower middle classes and the working class in these movements. Our, our lockdowns and vaccine mandates, are these fascist? I know, I mean... <laughs> They're not um, policies intended to um, formed as part of an ideological reaction against the revolutionary left. They have nothing to do with fascism. We can debate whether their incursions on the, the, the liberties a liberal society should provide. Um, we can certainly debate that, but they're not, they're not to do with fascism or Nazism or this is just silliness. And, and Dr. Fauci, is Dr. Fauci fascist? Is he, is fascist he Dr. Leaning? Uh, no, he's made many uh, false statements that I think have diminished his public standing, rightly, but he's not a fascist, no. Uh, what about socialized authoritarianism medicine? Authoritarianism, incidentally, isn't fascist. I'm sorry? Um, authoritarianism mm -hmm. is not fascism. I wouldn't call the United States or any of these countries authoritarian either, but uh, authoritarianism is not fascism either. Fascism belongs to certain time and place and has a, is a secondary phenomenon in the context of uh, a burgeoning revolutionary left. And socialized medicine, are you telling me that's not inherently fascist? Uh, certainly not, no. Um, uh, it's, you know, the, uh, it's pushed by uh, bourgeois, historically, it, uh, the socialized medicine programs, many of them are implemented by very bourgeois social democratic parties, like the Labour Party and in, in Britain in 1946 was not fascist, that implemented the NHS. So which regimes would you call fascist? Um, I think uh, fascist Italy is a prototypical uh, example. It manifests all the qualities I talked about, the um, emerging in reaction to a revolutionary left, fetishizing violence, a militarism, a populism, um, a contempt for bourgeois ethics, 
uh, Mussolini himself being a decorated veteran of the First World War, um, uh, hyper-nationalism, um, an expansionist foreign policy, even, you could say, with the invasion of Ethiopia. But um, the Italian example is distinct from what I think many would call the prototypical fascist example, the Nazism, because it doesn't involve genocidal racism, or really any um, systematic commitment to racism until the late 1930s. Now, Mussolini does invade Ethiopia um, um, in, in, the in, in the 1930s before his alliance with Hitler actually leads to his alliance with Hitler. But um, I agree with uh, someone like Paul Gottfried that his invasion of Ethiopia, while we of course condemn it today, it's wrong, uh, should be thought of more akin to British and French imperialism than like Nazi invasions of Poland. If you look at the justifications given, it's very much similar to the French Empire. They're going to bring civilization to these misbegotten lands. There's also, um, in, in the context of uh, fascist Italy, again, until the late 1930s where everything changes, um, there's significant levels of interracial marriage in, uh, in colonial Italy between um, Italian men and uh, black women. And they had mixed race children and these children were given passports and um, they were accepted as Italian citizens. Uh, certainly they had episodes of racism, but there was no, whereas in Germany, there was great concern with mixed race children between German women and black African men. The Nazis were very concerned about this. The Italians were not particularly concerned about this uh, phenomenon. And in fact, there's an anecdote I read about a British traveler throughout <laughs> colonial Italy who was shocked to see a proud fascist introduce just as proudly of, as he was of his fascism, he was, was he proud of his black son? So I mean, this is <laughs> different than Nazi Germany. And I think this is conflated with um, uh, the conflation with Nazi Germany um, comes not just from the fact that Nazi Germany had plays much more of a role in public consciousness in fascist Italy, but also because fascist Italy did become a racist state in the late 1930s. It did. Um, when Mussolini aligns with Hitler, right? So it does become a racist state at some point. Um, and there's no, there's no denying that. Although the Italians, interestingly, did not, um, like th they tried to ban miscegenation, for example, in the colonial territories. The Italians aren't abiding by that. I mean, they're Italians. If, you know, a black woman and Italian man fall in love. That's Italians aren't going to listen to, you know, some German race doctrine. These are Mediterranean people, right? So, you know, um, that's how that went. But they formally became a racist state in the late 1930s. And this had practical consequences for people, especially Jews in Italy, who were, Jews were overrepresented, by the way, in the fascist party from 1922 uh, through the late 1930s. But after Mussolini aligns with Hitler, and adopts anti-Semitic laws to placate Hitler. Hitler was upset. He was an anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist, what we now call. So he was like, very. He, you can't ally with him if, if you know, you're Jew friendly, right? So, uh, <laughs> um, so Mussolini being a, a pragmatic, rather a moral character in my view, um, he adopts these laws, these anti-Semitic laws, and Jews who are highly overrepresented in the fascist party are now all kicked out of it, right? Uh, nevertheless, though, even after the alignment with Nazi Germany, it, it, it seems that the Italians' heart, hearts weren't really into these policies. I mentioned uh, race mixing, people falling in love, black, white, black, whatever we want to call Italians, are they white? I'm not going to get into that. But um, 
black Italian couples this continued and wasn't really policed. And um, also Jews were treated much better in, um, in the occupied zone of, of France, occupied by Italy, than they were treated in not only the German occupied zone of France, but also the French occupied zone of France. Now, after the Italian state collapses in 1943, um, because of the Allied invasion, right, from, uh, from North Africa to Southern Italy, and the Nazis reconquer uh, Northern Italy, right, and set up a puppet state, then this puppet state does collaborate with the f extermination of the Jews. So given this legacy and this alliance with Nazi Germany and this participation in the Holocaust, it is understandable to some extent, the public kind of confusion on uh, what the, fascism is a historical phenomenon. The idea that it was race hatred was core to it the same way as Nazism, it is understandable. Nevertheless, this is a confused notion. Um, the, the, the uh, you know, fascist Italy was an authoritarian, for, before the alliance with Nazism, fascist Italy was an authoritarian regime. It was an imperial regime, but so were Britain and France. Um, it wasn't uh, systematically racist in a way that um, Britain and France weren't. It was much more comparable to, in its racial policies, if you will, in its imperial policies to other European powers than to Nazi Germany, you know, the big bad. Rightly considered the big, I mean, if you're going to behave like the big bad, I mean, it's only responsible that we regard you as such, right? What are some warning signs for parents that their children might be turning into fascists? <laughs> well, again, I think this is all LARPing. If they're on the internet, the children are not, if the children start marching with armbands, I mean, I guess we should be concerned, right? Um, no, there's not, there's not a fascist movement coming in the United States. Um, the Groypers, uh, I think their views on women are reprehensible. They're not fascists, right? Um, Trump? Is a buffoon. Um, I don't think he's a, a fascist. Why is he a fascist? So I just see this as totally fake and silly, really. It's become a, as Paul Gottfried says, it's become associated with Nazism and that, and then it's become associated with evil. So you're basically, when you're calling someone a fascist, you're saying you're a bad person, you know? Um, the term has been robbed of its historical meaning and context. <laughs> It's become, become quite silly, really. I mean, the use of it. Jonah Goldberg's affirmative action is fascist. I mean, whatever one's views on affirmative action, it first of all, it has nothing to do with fighting the revolutionary left, affirmative action. Second of all, um, if you're saying fascism is the same as Nazism, and I don't agree with that, um, but if you are, it, it has nothing to do with exterminating Jews and putting them into concentration camps and uh, develop believing in the protocols of the elders of Zion and ethnically cleansing Poles because Poles aren't. Are, are not Aryan, they're Asians or whatever they thought, you know? What are, what are signs that your children might be turning into Nazis? <laughs> well, again, I don't think, well, there are, look, what I would say is they're anti-Semitic conspiracy theorists, right? That's the term I would use. There, That exists, right? But I don't think they're really Nazis. I mean, you know, Mike Enoch, Serbian, the, the Nazi puppet state, the Ustasha, committed genocide against his ancestors, presumably, right? If, if any of them had remained in Serbia, right? I mean, he probably would have ended up in some kind of coal mine if Hitler had his way, you know, just as a slave, essentially, with no freedom of movement and some nominal salary and no right to leave the job, right? So they're not, he says he may identify with Nazi regime, but it's all nonsense. It's people who don't understand what Nazism was, don't understand the historical context. 
I mean, you have to be German. You have to belong to a certain time and space, essentially. You can be an anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist. That's possible. Like, th those people exist today. I'm not saying that's a time-bound phenomenon. I don't think Nazism is a thing, really. I, you can say you're a neo-Nazi, I suppose. What, what does that mean, though, really? Does that just mean anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist? What do you think? What is a neo-Nazi? Oh, I... A silly, a very, an uncommonly silly person would be one definition. Right, but I mean, I mean words are, are symbols for, for a reality. And so I'm just wondering, is there a useful reality in calling people neo-Nazis? So let's say... I don't think so, really, no. Okay. I think anti-Semitic conspiracy theorists is more descriptively accurate. Or you can say Nazi apologist is good, too. But they're not Nazis. I mean, again, that's a time-bound term, I think. Maybe neo-Nazi. I guess that's new Nazi. So maybe you say, okay, we like them even though they committed genocide against our grandpas if you're like a Ukrainian neo-Nazi, you know? What about calling Richard Spencer a neo-Nazi? <laughs> I mean, you go to his Wikipedia. I mean, I'm just going to go right now. Richard B. Spencer. Richard B. Spencer. I've drank a little bit tonight. You can probably tell. Look, I hope you'll forgive me for yeah, that. Yeah, of course. It's American neo-Nazi, anti-Semitic conspiracy. I mean, it's basically like somewhere in between Jeffrey Epstein and Jeffrey Dahmer, the guy's public image. Right. And white supremacist. So, I mean, it's, I, I view it as saying this is a really bad person and a ridiculous person. And with Spencer, it's sad because he actually has read books and is intelligent. I don't know why he went down this path. Um, and, I mean, the, they're probably being unfair by calling him that, but he brought it on himself to some extent, too. Why would you say, why would you do this? Have you seen the video where they're all zig heiling at the Charlottesville rally? Yes. Like, it's just ridiculous. There's also one guy in the corner who's like, his arms are full. He's like, oh, I can imagine him thinking, oh, I just thought this was about Robert E. Lee, not Zig Heiling. They also say it like Sieg. They don't even pronounce it correctly, which is also funny. <laughs> I don't know why he did it, because he's not dumb. The other people are all are all really stupid in this movement or hadn't read a book. Some of them aren't stupid, but they hadn't, they just made assumptions about what the Nazis were, like some universal white nationalist movement and didn't know that they ethnically cleanse Poles and um, raised Warsaw. Like they don't know this stuff, right? That he raised Warsaw and enslaved people, like kidnapped Poles to work in brutal conditions, slave labor type conditions. So they don't know it. And I don't understand why he did because he's actually read books. It doesn't make any sense to me. Why would you do that, behave like that? I don't know. Now, is but fascism is, inherently violent? Uh, no, I don't think anyone is a Nazi today. <laughs> I think there are people who engage in live action role playing as Nazis because they think Hugo Boss uniforms are cool and they want to be the big bad. So it's like 12 year old level. Um, I think there also are anti-Semitic conspiracy theorists. That's the thing. Like, that exists in the contemporary world. Nazis don't. I mean, as, as horrible as a person as you might be, you can't really become, if you're some Slavic American with five ethnicities, you can't really become a Nazi in the historical sense of the term. Now, is fascism inherently violent? I think there is a cult of violence in fascism, and I think there is a contempt for bourgeois norms regarding violence being the worst thing ever, you know? 
I think there's a, there's a, they think action is necessary sometimes and action often means violence. So yeah, I do. I think, I think it's a violent ideology. How violent is of course <laughs> an important question. Um, you know, Mussolini's victims compared to Hitler before 1943, the establishment of the Italian Social Republic, which is essentially a, uh, you know, a German puppet state. It isn't even, Mussolini's not even doing anything at that point. Um, but the, his victims are trivial in number compared to Hitler's at that point. So what are some warning signs that your kids might be gripers? Well, actually, this is a, a movement that is less ridiculous than neo-Nazism because it's rooted in the United... A movement to be successful has to be rooted... It's very simple, right? I'm not claiming I'm great at politics, but clearly, if you want to be a successful political movement in the United States, you have to appeal to the history and culture of the United States, right? Yes. You can't just say we're going to be Germans from the 1930s. <laughs> I mean, I don't think that when no one speaks German, no one speaks any other foreign language in the United States except you and me. Um, I don't think that'll be very productive. The Groyper movement is rooted in actual American culture. They like rap music. Young Americans, racist or not, white or not, like rap generally. Um, they have a certain uh, dialectical... Uh, they have a certain dialect developed in gaming culture. That is a thing that relates to people's lived experience in the United States. They are pro-America, right? I, by the way, I have nothing but contempt for their political views. I think their views on women are ridiculous. But they're less unserious. They're, they're more of a threat politically, I'd say, than this neo-Nazi nonsense was because the ideas they're advocating and the language they use is rooted in certain traditions in America and also in the contemporary American um, polity. So I think they're more serious politically than the neo-Nazis were. I mean, they're not doing book burnings, for one. Uh, National Justice Party, another fascist party? I'd say live-action role-playing party. So you don't think it's going to win a lot of votes? <laughs> we'll see. I would literally bet my life on that. and I would literally bet... Uh, if again, the win is $20. So I win $20. And um, if I lose, I would burn it for all eternity that they wouldn't, uh, that they will not achieve success at any kind of significant national level. Because it doesn't, again, it isn't about the ideas. The, the silliness is one thing, but the it's just all anachronism. It doesn't relate to America, right? I mean, anti-Semitism has never, this has never been, the idea of Jews as a separate race has never been an American thing. It was a French thing, right? It was a German thing. This, this idea of this extreme anti-Semitism doesn't resonate in this country. There isn't a history of it. There's history of it. If you're talking about France or Germany or Austria or Russia or Poland, yeah, you have, there is something you can appeal to there that is organic. Here it's all kind of contrived because they want to be like the Hugo Boss people, right? Because they looked cool. So they kind of contrive this anti-Semitism. It doesn't resonate with Americans. It is, let's even leave aside the question of whether it's right or wrong. It doesn't resonate, you know. And they also are saying America's been horrible for, they're not just saying as the Gropers are that America's taken a bad, gone a bad way, right, in the last, in the last generation, but it was good, you know, or the last two generations. They're saying liberalism is bad, right? Yes. So they're basically saying the founding ideology of the country is bad. The country was wrong in World War II, uh, you know, and destroyed the world by destroying the Nazis. 
Um, the country, I think Stryker has said that most of American ideology is bad. So it's not going to appeal to Americans if you're saying the country is bad. I mean, one example, the Nazis hated Christianity, most of them, but they publicly pretended to be Christian because they knew that you have to appeal to the traditions of a the country. They can't just start LARPing as pagans. They knew they had to um, get power before they weeded out Christianity. Even when they came to power and Hitler became an extraordinarily popular dictator, he was hesitant about conflict with the churches and thought this had to be a gradual process and it has to wait till the end of the war. But these guys just declare all their ideology, no matter how alien it is to Americans or alienating. And it, no, it's of course it won't work, right? It'll appeal to a teeny number of antisocial people. Now I'm looking at the platform of the National Justice Party. <laughs> Let's do it. Number 14 says, we will declare Israel a rogue state and exporter of terrorism. The national mm -hmm. rights of the Palestinian people must be respected. So would you align with the... <laughs> well, NJP you know, I, I, again, I don't think you can ha have a very negative view of Israel and not believe in anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. I mean, there's two types of people. There's one that believes Harrison Ford, who's Jewish, um, is conspiring against white people. That's a certain type of person. There's another person who says, I don't like Israel because of the Nekba, where my Palestinian friends had their, you know, fathers uh, ethnically cleansed, right? So th these are different issues, I think. Um, I think the United States, my view is the United States should not be involved in picking any side in this conflict. Well, um, how about the United States? I think it's one of the less ridiculous parts of their platform, actually. But um, I don't think the United States should be involved in this conflict one way or the other. What I about think maybe we should say as, as, an, as an abstract principle that we believe in self-determination for all people, we oppose ethnic cleansing. We believe in self-determination for the Palestinians. We believe in the Israelis uh, also have a, have a right to exist and so forth. You know, I, I, I think personally the polity should be changed. I believe in a one-state solution where everybody of Palestinian and Jewish descent has a right to citizenship. So I'm actually pretty liberal and critical of Israel on this, but um, I, as a polity, I don't think we should be involved one way or another in demanding this is what's going to happen. Yeah. I don't know what that has to do with, with well, I guess it's anti-Jewish. So yeah, it makes sense they're into that. Um, they could, you could, could be construed as anti-Jewish, but I need not be. I mean, I'm anti-Israel as it's currently constituted, but I'd not, you know, I don't want to uh, ethnically cleanse Harrison Ford, right? Okay. And, okay. So can one be anti-Israel and not anti-Jewish? Of course, yeah. Um, so as a matter of one... logic, you can, as a matter of practical, I think Jews have been a wonderful presence in the Western world. I think Israel is a, um, is a state founded in ethnic cleansing and ridiculous kind of LARP. I mean, the people are there now, so you can't really say it's all LARPing because they've been there for some time, but initially it was kind of LARPing. I mean, you're talking about because you have ancient ancestry from regions, so maybe, I mean, I think even that's debatable. I think they definitely have like the Near Eastern component, but it's not entirely clear where it's from. It could be closer to Lebanon. There are different kind of studies on this. But regardless, the idea of coming back after millennia, I find a bit ridiculous. Should the gypsies get part of India? I mean, the Romani people, they're originally from the subcontinent. But they're there. Um, you can't kick them all out. So I would have a one-state solution where they have a right to be there all Jews have a right to be there. All Palestinians have a right to be there. That's my view. I don't think this translates to hostility toward Jews. I have no problem with Jewish people. I actually like the pre-Zionist Jews. 
uh, Jewish culture. That's the Jewish culture that I find inspiring and compelling. Um, this new like tough guy thing, I don't really resonate to. I think it's kind of not really true to the historical, at least Ashkenazi Jewish experience. I'm, but you know, I'm not Jewish, so who am I to say? But those are kind of my views. And I, I think it's these are different claims, Luke. I mean, whatever one's view of this state, it's different than saying, oh, like Harrison Ford secretly hates white people, or the Protocols of the Elders of Zion are true, or um, <laughs> the Jews started World War II. <laughs> right. I mean, they also believe Neville Chamberlain started World War II, I suppose. Though they think Churchill was the prime minister at the time the war began. So, I mean, they got this warmonger, uh, Churchill. I agree, he was a warlike personality. They got this guy because they're dealing with this lunatic. And they had like a civilized gentleman, a kind of non-interventionist conservative balance of power guy, Neville Chamberlain. But the lunatic didn't take the concessions he got from Chamberlain, right? He wanted to conquer all of Czechoslovakia for no reason. And why does Germany get to rule over parts of Czechoslovakia that have no historical connection to Germany? You know, after being given the Sudan line. Okay, hang on. So you say you have no problem with Jews, but you also you you say that you believe in national self determination. Well, they're dumb if they, I'm sorry, but if they they are dumb if they think I have a problem with them as an ethnic group because I I, I don't agree with the the policy of ethnic cleansing that was clearly engaged in by the state that. Uh, some that many Zionists, most Zionists deny absurdly, even though they passed laws after these people fled, they claim, or were ethnically cleansed, they passed laws saying they can't come back. So even if you believe they all fled by the merest happenstance, the laws itself represented an ethnic cleansing policy because war refugees were not allowed to return. So you believe in self-determination for all people but Jews. Jews are the one people who don't get to have their no, own No, in practice, I believe Israel should exist. And uh, but it, it's, I believe a new state should be established, essentially, that where all Jews have the right to be there and all Palestinians have the right to be there. It should be co-denominational on the, on the, along the lines of, say, Lebanon. I don't think such a state will be fanatically Islamic. I think that's a silly fantasy. The Levant has never had the kind of religious zealotry that you see in like the Gulf, for example. And the only reason you see that with Palestinian populations is how brutally they're mistreated. And they have to, rec they're resorting to this in a way Syrians don't, Jordanians don't, Lebanese Muslims don't, but they're resorting to a, a religious dialectic, um, an, an extremist dialectic uh, in order to kind of account for and cope with their miserable material circumstances. Because this is not, this is alien from uh, Levantine Islam in the last couple centuries, the level of extremism you do see among Palestinian populations today. Their own state. Jews are the one people in the world yeah. who don't get to have their own state. They do get their state. They all, they all get to go to Palestine if they want. To, so they to get Israel to be a minority. Palestine. Maybe they want their own state. Who knows if they'd be a minority or not? Of course they'd be a minority in a one state. I mean, everyone around the world could come there. So why would they, they could go there if they want? And uh, your objection to Israel is that it was founded by ethnic cleansing. So could you name some nation states that were not founded by ethnic cleansing? I agree with you on this. That's why I don't have this obsession with Israel as the great evil. Uh, yeah, they, other nations have engaged in ethnic cleansing. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's history, right? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think they're, they're demonic people. So, I get frustrated. I have, look, I, I lived in the Middle East for a couple years. Uh, I mentioned last time I'm of maternal Egyptian ancestry. So I know Palestinians. I have, uh, so I have some more of a personal stake on this in this than 
you know, in other episodes of ethnic cleansing, right? But so that may be affecting my judgment and my, my outrage, but I don't think, I think that this is within modern memory and there are people alive who, who went through the Nekba. So I don't really see why, like, I mean, to put it this way, my friend Walid Sheikho, why should his father not be able to return to Yaffa? But Harrison Ford can go there. Doesn't that seem rather absurd? I mean, he, this is a full-blooded Palestinian. Well, I don't see why the Jewish state would be... Harrison uh, Ford can go there. Wait, 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 let me finish my point. Let me finish my point. I don't see why, why the Jewish state would be enhanced by the presence of your friend. Why is Israel, the Jewish state, stronger for the presence of your friend? I mean, it wouldn't be stronger if the definition of the state is an ethnic, an ethno state. Then, of course, it would be weakened by someone of another ethnic identity. Right. So every every nation state has has rules about who gets to move there, and and race and religion are key determinants of the social cohesion of a state. Sure, but not always. I mean, no, you have right. many examples. You have many examples of of states with multiple ethnicities, not just in the Western world. You have, Russia is a good, sorry, I'm gonna turn off my phone, Luke, just for a second. Oh. Yeah, I got a sports center update. Um, <laughs> you know, I like sports. We'll talk about that maybe later. But um, uh, you have like the Russian Federation, for example, has many different ethnic groups and maintains a conservative patriotic culture. You have Tartars, you have Caucasians, um, you have Central Asians. Um, and there's still there there still is a patriotic conservative national culture in Russia, right? Um, so I don't I, I don't I think that a state comprised of two ethnic groups that are you know I, I'm making the Harrison Ford point to kind of be polemical, but there are Jews who look kind of Near Eastern certainly Ashkenazi, obviously the Mizrahi. Um, so these are two people that have more in common than they than they might think. You know that's what I would argue. Um, and there's this horrible history and all this hatred, but I don't see why they couldn't. If you go to Jordan or Lebanon, you see so many secular Palestinians. I don't see it as you know, metaphysically impossible that they could reach, they could have a state together and a national identity that accommodates both of them. It seems absurd now, but I don't see it as metaphysically impossible. I mean, you had you had profound hatred between the Lebanese Christians and Muslims. Um, but look at what view. a success Lebanon's turned I mean, into. Well, okay, it isn't a success in terms of <laughs> of the economy. It's a success, though, in terms of um, of reconciliation between the Christians and Muslims. There's not strong anti-Muslim or anti-Christian sentiment in that country right now. There, with, as the well, that's because, I mean, there's a very clear winner. The Muslims won, and so the Christians know their place. Mm, I think that's a, that's a questionable characterization of the conflict. You had Palestine, Palestinian Christians, for example, were generally sympathetic to the so-called Muslim side in the in the Lebanese civil war. There was certainly sectarian hatred, but look, they share power. The Christians the Christians are get get all the positions the Muslims do. There is not it isn't a case like Egypt where Christians are oppressed. It's there's power sharing essentially. Um, and in fact the power sharing dynamics prior to the civil war favored the Christians beyond their demographic numbers. And now it still favors the Christians slightly above their demographic numbers, but not it was it was essentially a, a a Christian ruling class prior to the Civil War in the country, and now it's more uh, equitable to use the woke language. Um, and and they, Chris have to, they have you know I, I mentioned woke Lebanon. They kind of do abide by uh, extreme political correctness when it comes to religion. Like you cannot criticize Islam or Christianity if you criticize. 
they're not Christianity, you're in trouble because they're, they are really seeking to have reconciliation, right? And banishing these sectarian divisions of the past. So they've become very politically correct on matters of religion. You cannot attack uh, Christianity or Islam, but it, it isn't an Islamic society. I mean, there's, you can go get a beer there, you know, you can go fuck a girl there. There are, you know, I think even homosexuality is legal. Um, I'm sure it isn't condoned, but it isn't condoned in the Eastern world generally. It isn't condoned in Armenia, you know? So it, it, it isn't under Islamic law, Lebanon. Uh, it, it, if, you're, if you're a Muslim seeking to get married, that might be regulated by Islamic law, but it's not imposed on the population as such. Nor is it in Jordan, by the way. And even though the Christian minority there is quite small. So if, if fascism isn't something that's alive and well and, and a threat today, uh, what price do we pay for having so many things described today as fascist? Well, it leads to a lot of stupidity, right? Yeah. Um, it's, so it's, if you're someone who's read about this, it causes a certain, a certain type of headache when you hear people talk, talk about fascism. Um, you, it even, even the people who describe themselves as fascists, like the white nationalists, they don't know what it is because this ideology was not synonymous with white nationalism, right? In the Nazi iteration, it kind of was, and even there, many of groups that are described as white are banished from the folk, you know, like the like Slavs, namely. But um, yeah, it, it just is annoying because it's really stupid and anachronistic and wrong. But I, I, I think like, it, it, look, what God treats us is correct. It means Nazism in the popular vernacular and Nazism means evil people, you know? So you're basically saying that's an evil person and you're using this term to sound, I suppose, educated is the word, but they're trying to sound that way. I don't know. Well, I think they use it for the, for the power of the stigma that comes with that word. I really not, don't know if there's much of a stigma though, because it's been, it's been overused so much that I think my point of view, Gottfried's point of view, I think your point of, I'm sure your point of view yes. is, is becoming stronger. This is just a hate term. It doesn't mean anything, right? Because there's nothing to do with the historical phenomenon, which is a rather interesting phenomenon of a failed political ideology that uh, perverted itself through an alliance with Nazism, you know, in the late 1930s, right? Yeah. Uh, let me read a little bit from Paul Gottfried's book, Anti-Fascism, The Course of a Crusade. Unlike sure. generic fascism, Antifa is not patriotic. It seeks to destroy, not to reinforce historic Western notions. It is also by far too irrational and nihilistic to be Marxist. Attempts by mm -hmm. Republicans to treat Antifa as the latest distillation of Marxist socialism reject partisan opportunism, historical reek of partisan opportunism, historical ignorance, mm -hmm. or both. Except for its efforts to identify with other forms of the left that operated at other times, Antifa, through violence and its ability to create extensive support systems, look, looks very much like early national socialism. What do you think? Well, I think, I think the comparison of Antifa with national socialism, I think Gottfried knows better. But I agree with everything else he said. Like, I agree with everything else he said, right? Um, the uh, there, there isn't a comparison between Antifa and the revolutionary communists. Um, those people were much more intellectually serious. They had real humanistic traditions. I don't condone communism. I recognize its horrible human costs. I see it as a largely failed political system, although it worked better in some places than others. But I think the, the kind of boomer cliches of what communism, there's rough justice to them. I've said that in print. But 
I agree with what he said about Antifa. They're not, and also these people online, like Hudson Piker, these are not communists. They're not Marxists. Those people had a humanistic tradition. They weren't, they weren't allied to capital, right? They were the enemies of property classes. Whereas these are people that are allied, that are sponsored by Twitch, right? For example, Hudson Piker. I don't know if you know this guy, uh, Luke, but he's a Mark. He's like the biggest Marxist social media personality. He's sponsored by a corporation, of course, right? I mean, wow. it's just ridiculous. You know, um, and AOC is 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 welcome with open arms into uh, the moneyed uh, um, the social life of Manhattan, right? Um, so these are not Marxists, no. They, and they're as Gottfried says, Marxists had a specific ideology, right? A pretty rigid, logical ideology, um, you know, that has a certain theory of history and economics, and. One example is, you can say this is reductionist, I actually agree, but Marxists believe that class struggle is the main principle of history. So they would they would try to understand this racial stuff that people are obsessed with in terms of class, right? They wouldn't try to understand woke in terms of class. That's what a Marxist would do, you know? And they'd be highly suspicious of movements like Antifa that are funded by, by big capital, right? Um, and Black Lives Matter, for that matter, is funded by uh, large financial institutions. So, no, these movements have nothing to do with Marxism. This is just radical chic uh, to wear the, to, to, to put on the um, uh, Marxist ropes. Marxists were willing to use violence to advance their views, but they also had firm ideological viewpoints. And um, these other, these Antifa people are just a bunch of thugs, right? Now, he mentions Nazism. Um, he despises Nazism. His his family was actually killed by uh, by Nazi conspiracy theorists. So I understand why he wants to associate things he hates with Nazism, but I don't think um, th there is a, a certain body of doctrine with Nazis, right, too. Like anti-Semitic conspiracy theories are very important, you know. Um, German notion of, of, of German tradition and German militarism, and this is not to be found on Tifa. So I, that's why I said I view that last part as kind of a, he knows better than that. Because he's a very serious scholar, you know. He's he's a really right-wing guy. I don't sympathize with his politics, but he's a serious scholar. And he I think he knows better than to say Antifa is. And I think he wouldn't stand by that if I if I were to ask him about it. I interviewed him. I don't know if you saw that interview. Yeah, but there's only like eight minutes of the interview posted on your YouTube channel. Where's the rest of it? Yeah. Um, I think there's more than eight minutes. There's like maybe, I don't know. I, there, I should post the rest. There were, the problem there is they were like, technological issues oh, okay. yeah i mean i'm not going to get into more into detail about that but he's really guys would interview him again in the future and then there were also some so there were technological issues that fucked up some parts of it and then there were things that like you know someone would place me under arrest for for agreeing with him on in other parts you know <laughs> yeah so that so that had to be pushed but, but well, wasn't... he's very he's a highly serious scholar He's on the. He's certainly very right wing. I, there's some views I think he in politics I really disagree with. Like he's I, he believes the election was stolen. It seems to me, and I think that's uh, absurd. Not a priori absurd, but absurd if you look at the facts. Right? It isn't the idea. That, clearly, there are people who had a mo who would. There are a lot of people in our country who think it would be justified to steal the election from Trump. So it isn't absurd a priori. But if you look at the facts, it's absurd. But yeah. as a historian, uh, Gottfried is is. It, we can't afford to ignore him, I think. Now, how do you understand Antifa? I see them as, as thugs without a firm ideology. I, I, I think calling them fascists or, or even Nazis or, um, or, or communists is inaccurate. 
I think they're a bunch of thugs, more or less. Um, I think they're perfectly happy to work with corporate America. In the summer of love, we saw that. I believe they were fun. I know Black Lives Matter was obviously they're different groups, but I, I think Rantifo may have even been funded by uh, by big capital in the summer of love. I, I'm not sure of that, but um, maybe something we should fact check or viewers should. But, but, but the general point goes that Black Lives Matter and it w was funded by corporate America, and it wouldn't be surprising that parts of Antifa have been too. <laughs> I mean, you had, um, uh, uh, I can't remember what position he is. I believe Keith Ellison's son was like a, he's a yes. government official and was, yeah. was in, yeah, there were connections between moneyed elites and Antifa. And then you have people like Hassan Piker, who I mentioned, who are apologists or supportive of Antifa who are funded by corporations. So, um, no, I mean, the level of alienation and struggle between moneyed interests and uh, Marxists in the early 20th century, uh, this opposition was stark and profound and violent, right? I mean, you had uh, basically uh, German capitalists were willing to put Hitler into power. Someone they saw, they underestimated him to be, to be sure, but they saw him as a buffoon and a vulgarian and they didn't like, him. they were anti-Semitic themselves, most of them, but not in the crude conspiratorial way, right? He was. And um, they didn't like him, but they were willing to put him in power because they were so fearful of the communists and they wanted him to bonk their heads, right? Um, so you, you don't have that elite, you don't have that today. If anything, they're, they're kind of, um, they're commingling together, the Antifa types and the corporate America. At the very least, there isn't the same level of conflict, right? Maybe they're not, maybe I exaggerate their connection, but there isn't the same level of conflict. I think right. they're just a bunch of thugs. Um, I don't think they have a, an ideology, um, a well-formed ideology of any kind. Hmm. And, uh, Franco's Spain, was that fascist? You know, I've read much more about fascist Italy than Franco's Spain. Paul Gottfried doesn't believe it was fascist. Um... You know, I would have to, I would have to just pass on this because I don't know enough about Franco's regime to assess whether it meets these characteristics in terms of the, um, I mean, it, it certainly was formed as a reaction against the revolutionary left, you know, um, if you look at Republican Spain. So that element, that element is satisfied. But does the ideology have this incessant nationalism, this fetishization of violence, this contempt for the bourgeoisie in terms of its inaction and weakness. I don't, I'd have to read more about it before I, I, I say. Um, there are other regimes I think I could talk about that, whether they're fascist or not, like Vichy France, um, Antonescu's Romania, and so Was on. Was Vichy France fascist? No, certainly not, no. I mean, Vichy France was populated by monarchists. Um, who um, were, were anti, essentially anti-republicanism. Uh, they, they wanted to undo the French Revolution. They wanted to restore political Catholicism. Um, they were not fascists. They were, they were essentially from a, tradition, a French tradition that was not fascistic. Fascism in France <coughs> did not, um, it was from a different strain than the kind of people who populated the leadership of Vichy France. Now, Vichy France does collaborate with the Holocaust, which is obviously horrible, but uh, they're not a fascist regime. And I think Robert Paxton, um, I don't know if you're familiar with him or no. I'm not sure. 
Okay, he wrote a very famous book about uh, Vichy France, where he shows that Vichy France, because like the kind of post-war cope was that these were a bunch of fascists who didn't represent France. The kind of, um, in fact, it wasn't just, you know, it was, um, that was de Gaulle's position, right? I mean, that wasn't, that Vichy France, France is not responsible for Vichy France because that wasn't France, essentially. Marine Le Pen uh, believes this too. That's what she says. She's not like her dad. She's not an anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist, but she's, you know, trying to revive the, the position of de Gaulle, which has kind of fallen into favor in French politics, that we're not responsible for what happened in Vichy France because this wasn't France. This was a German puppet state with fascists who had no, who are not part of our tradition, right? But no, I mean, Paxton's, uh, uh, Paxton's famous book, Vichy France, Old Garden, New Order, you can probably guess from the title, shows that the people who populate the bureaucracy, the political ideas, um, um, you know, uh, kind of state detain, all of this was founded in uh, French uh, traditions and the anti-monarchist tradition, right? Uh, pardon me, the, the anti-Republican tradition. So the collaboration of the Nazis was utterly reprehensible and opportunistic, but the actual ideology, to the extent there was one, which there certainly was in the first couple of years at least, and the personnel and the style of governance, this was um, from a French tradition, not fascism. Um, a monarchist tradition. Which is interesting how you know, I always found it interesting how the French could retain, because the French right, anti, pardon me, anti-republicanism was endemic in the French right. I mean, republicanism was pretty marginal in the French right in the 19, before the Nazis, right? In the 1930s, opposition to the Third Republic was widespread among the right. And I always found that fascinating that you can, you know, nearly uh, a century and a half later after the overthrow of the monarchy, that monarchism could be so endemic, and it was, so. Okay, I'm going to play that uh, David Irving clip, about three minutes, 40 seconds, sure. where he talks about the Holocaust. Anything you want to say prior to my beginning? Yeah, okay, so there have been people on the internet, neo-Nazis, anti-Semitic conspiracy, there's these people who have said that I, I misrepresented Irving in our last conversation by saying he effectively acknowledges the Holocaust. And this is my response. So let's, as Bill O'Reilly would say, let's roll the tape. Okay, so just stay muted for a few minutes. Yes, hello. Uh, may I ask you um, what your current view of um, what's called the Holocaust is? Get the extent of it. Uh, very tricky question. Yeah. Because it's the kind of question that the enemy would like to get on tape and my answer. But I will tell you very briefly, I'm, I'm writing the biography of Heinrich Himmler at this present. <coughs> uh, if you break up what is called the Holocaust into its, its, its three or four separate elements, then you have the original element, which is the police operations on the Eastern Front and in Poland, uh, which are regular police operations, the kind which occur in any military conflict. And then you have the the second phase, which is the more ethnic cleansing kind of operation being carried out by, uh, by Henry Schiller to um, tackle the problem of Judea, which is what I've described, decided to call it in my, in my biography, 
It's, it's the original problem began for the Germans in 1933 with the famous headline in Daily Express, <coughs> Sunday Express, Judea declared war on Germany. And uh, this is basically the German response. They're getting rid of the problem once and for all mm. with Heinrich uh, Himmler and various guises, uh, liquidating the Jews, um, both the enemy Jews and the German Jews throughout 1942 and 1943. We know that uh, went on because of the intercepted messages. The intercepted messages of the SS um, leave no doubt at all that very large numbers were, were dealt with. Um, it's possible that certain people in the SS may have been exaggerating, but not significantly. And in 1942 and 1943, in the four camps, Operation Reinhardt on the eastern front uh, along the River Brook, named the camps uh, known as Sobibor, Belzech, Majnek, and Treblinka. The police chief in Lublin, a man called Odilo Blavoshnik, who deserves far more attention from the history books than Adolf Eichmann and small characters like that. He was liquidating a total of uh, 1.25 million in 1942 and probably about the same number in 1943. So they got about 2.8 million in, in those two operations. And to, to that, the shootings in, on the Eastern Front and in Poland in, 19, in, the, pre, in the previous years. And finally, the declaration of the Jews in Slovakia and Hungary in, in 1944. And you, you come to a figure that's give or take uh, close to the figure that the Jews themselves now uh, uh, spout. <coughs> I think it's interesting that they, they don't like anybody who, who tries to suggest the Jews had it coming to them as, as a counter-operation to the boycott operation which they started in 1933 and everything since then, mm. the assassination of the top Nazis and so on. Um, you never hear them talking about the causes of the Holocaust. They only ever talk about the numbers, the figures, the places, the locations. But beyond that, I won't say anything. Okay, uh, Matt, you're going to have to unmute yourself. I'm, I'm not able to mute you. Sure. Okay. okay. So, so yeah, I, I was playing Donkey Kong, but I know this clip well. The reason that this clip corroborates Irving's belief in the full Holocaust story, including Auschwitz, I think he mentions specifically the first two elements of the Holocaust, the Einsatzgruppen and mass shootings, and the exterminations in the Reinhardt camps. But he also refers to the liquidation of the Hungarian Jews in 1944, and that happened in the gas chambers of Auschwitz, according to the mainstream story. So if you're denying that they were killed at Auschwitz, that's where these people were sent, then, uh, pardon me, if, if, you, if you're denying that, then uh, that Auschwitz was an extermination camp, and these people weren't killed, right? David Cole denies that he doesn't believe they were killed, um, even though he accepts the rest of the Holocaust. So here Irving is acknowledging, and also mentions that the number of Jews killed is 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 more or less the same as what the Jews spout, is what he says. So yes. you can believe a conspiracy theory that he's being coerced or whatever, but it doesn't sound like it, because he's, <laughs> he's saying the Jews brought it on themselves, so he's certainly not being politically correct. But he's acknowledging that the mainstream story is essentially accurate here, including Auschwitz implicitly. So that's what I mean by that. Um, okay, great. Let me let me go through some of the National Justice Party. Let's see if they're fascist. Let's do it. Yeah. The United States of America will be declared an outpost of Western civilization. Is that fascist? 
Um, no, I don't really know what it means. Um, what does that mean? But I wouldn't say it's fascist, no. Uh, it's a state dedicated to its European heritage population and their posterity. So if you... It, okay. Are all ethno-states fascist? No, of course not. Um, I mean, the United States was uh, limited immigration to whites um, before uh, fascism existed. So that wouldn't be fascist, no. Um, it's not going to happen. It's not going to be defined. The demographics make this impossible and politics make this impossible. So it's kind of silly to talk about. But um, you could call for a, a prohibition on immigration, but you can't make this a white ethnic state, you know? We need to take passports away from Mexicans. Like, what, what is the implication of this? Mexican-Americans? Now, if, if Israel has, has an immigration... Yeah, I'm not talking about taking passports away from people, Jewish people in Israel. I'm talking yeah. about giving them to Palestinians. That's, not, that's different. L let me make my point. So if Israel draws up policies to ensure that Israel remains a Jewish majority state, is that fascist? No, no. <laughs> okay. Neither is fascist. It, it, it's it's not going to happen in the United States. It's, I mean, the, the thing like the gro the Grokers don't actually advocate that America. They don't advocate white nationalism, right? Um, they may want it, but they're, they're, Nick Fuentes is sophisticated politically enough to know that that is impossible, given current demographics and given all of the people have too many <laughs> loved ones in their family that are not white. You know, even whites who may be racist or inclined to racism, aren't going to morally accept that you take the passports away from every <laughs> Korean American or whatever it is. That this I'm not saying it calls for this, by the way. I don't know what yeah. that means. But it's not going to be defined. At, I mean, if, in the sense of Western culture, of course, this is a Western country in the sense that it's English-speaking and liberal. Of course, it's a Western country, but it's not defined by a racial type either. I mean, we're, we're just, we're way too it's, you know, generations too late for something like that. And uh, more from the National Justice Party here. It would be the policy of the state of the United States of America to set immigration and NATO policy that will ensure a permanent European majority. The rights of historic minority populations will be respected. So does okay, it sound so fascist? So again, what is a historical minority population? Is it just African-Americans, Native Americans like you know, do um, the, the implication there is is that non-historic minority populations will not be respected, which again is we can virtue signal about how bad that is, but it's just not going to happen. There are too many families with a Korean or a Sudanese, or you know, it's just not going to happen. This is not supported by the American right. It isn't supported by Southern racists in Alabama. Like this is just the ship has sailed, you know. Now, you're talking about prohibiting immigration or, or natal policy. I mean, sure, that's possible. Why not? Right. I mean, there have been periods where immigration has been frozen in this country. That wouldn't be alien to the history of the country. It would be highly controversial, but that's possible. But you're not going to um, have some special rights for people of European descent. That's not going to happen. So the National Justice Party seems to me so disconnected from reality in America that I have to understand it as as a some kind of self-destruction wish fulfillment that this is you know these are people who already feel alienated from the rest of America and they want to virtue signal you know how different they are from from America so this is 
this strikes well, they're kind me. Of expressing their identity or philosophy, I think, right? I don't think they actually, for example, I don't think, I'm not going to be unkind to people I do think are dumb. I don't think Mike Enoch is actually dumb. I think he's actually talented. He says ridiculous things, right? Ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But I think he's actually gifted at being a gregarious radio personality, and that's why he's been successful, right? Yeah. I mean, when you when he's not expressing these just, you know, I, I don't want a virtue signal because it's lame, but when he's not saying unpleasant, vulgar things, he can be quite gregarious of the show, right? Yes. So, um, but, um, but nevertheless, they're saying ridiculous things. So I think, I think he must at some level know this isn't going to happen, right? Americans are not going to vote for this because it doesn't resonate with American history at all, you know? Right. And uh, you, you were recently in Turkey. So is Tur are the Turks as bad as Richard Spencer says? <laughs> no, they're, I actually think people should, more people should go to Istanbul. I think Turks are great people. Um, and I think that Erdogan, um, uh, you know, again, like we're all slaves to our history. So Erdogan, had, he may want Islamic law, but they've had a hundred years uh, of secularism in Turkey, right? They've had Mustafa Kemal as their great hero, and he still is. Um, so yeah, Erdogan can get, here's an example of a policy he got, he implemented. He, it used to be the case that if you wanted to be a civil servant in Turkey and you were a woman, you had to have no hijab. You could not wear the hijab on the, while you're working. You'd be fired. If you wanted to attend public university, you could not wear the hijab. And this was kind of aggressive Turkish secularism, right? Yeah. Now, Erdogan has moderated that so you can, you can wear the hijab. It's a choice. But he's not going to be able to prohibit alcohol or uh, criminalize homosexuality or... Um, um, require people to pray. This is not going to happen. I mean, he, he just, he, we're all slaves to history and he can, he probably wants them. He can virtue signal, but he's aware that you can't undo a century of history of Ataturk. You can't say Ataturk man bad. This isn't going to work, you know? And there even, if you even have polls, like I think not, this Pew poll, Sam Harris loved, do you remember these Pew polls of Muslims wanting Sharia law or whatever? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Turkey, I think, was ten percent. They wanted it. I believe the poll said ten percent. Um, many countries it was in the majority, but I think Turkey was ten percent. Let me get the link for you. It was very low. I'm certain it was very low. It was either ten percent or fifteen percent. And you could get in America five percent who want Christian theocracy, maybe more. Right. You know, if you ask in the poll. So it is quite marginal support for Islamic law. Um, in Turkey. It's not, it, people don't understand what he represents. Now, is he an authoritarian leader? Yes, but he's much more along the lines of a, of a Vladimir Putin than, you know, like a traditional um, Khilafah al-Islamiyah, like an Islamic caliphate, you know? Like, it, it, he's not, he's not going to introduce Islamic law, and Istanbul still remains a very free cosmopolitan and an interesting city. I, I don't know why. I actually am flabbergasted. I think the one reason he may have hated it is the one thing that is true is the Hagia Sophia is fucked up. Erdogan has fucked that because he turned it into a mosque and like has covered up the um, Christian symbols and much of it has fallen into disrepute because Ayatollah turned it into a museum and Erdogan has kind of a symbol of, you know, a virtue signal, if you will, of Islam is back, bro. He turned it into a mosque. And it looks really shitty. So maybe that triggered Spencer but I don't get like, you know, the um, the people are friendly. They're 
you don't see, you know, you, you probably see a higher, I mean, I may be exaggerating a little bit. The percentage of hijabs in Istanbul is probably lower than London. Um, so I don't understand what triggered him so much about Turkey, really. Um, but I think people should visit and they'd be surprised. They wouldn't like the Hagia Sophia, but I think otherwise they'd like Istanbul. Uh, wait, what is Hagia Sophia? Okay, so Hagia Sophia is uh, a cathedral um, that was um, um, a, a principal um, um, representation of the state church of the Roman Empire in uh, in the in Byzantium. You know, like I remember, you, you remember Richard Spencer said baked, white people in baked Alaska specifically have a deep connection to Byzantium. He's really yes. in Byzantium. <laughs> so. Um, it was the largest interior space in the world. It was this, um, it's this incredible dome and kind of the epitome of, of Byzantine architecture, you know? Um, so this was um, when the Turks conquered um, uh, Constantinople, right? Um, they turned it into a mosque. And when Mustafa Kemal came to power after the fall of the Islamic Caliphate, um, the Ottoman Empire, essentially, um, he turned it into a museum as a representation of how, no, we're secular now, you know, we're no longer, um, we're no longer, uh, it's a, it was at one point a Christian cathedral, then it was a mosque, and now it's a museum, right? And, and I don't, uh, pardon me, um, um, Erdogan has turned it back into a um, mosque. That's one of his, like, re-Islamizing things, you know, although, as I've argued, it's rather superficial, the re-Islamizing. I mean, there's no Islamic law, right? So if you go to the beach in, in Turkey, are there women in bikinis? Oh, of course, of course, yeah. Of course. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> if you go to Istanbul, you'll find that you'll re realize how ridiculous these questions are, honestly. I think people are just, just assume that the re-Islamization of Turkey is much more visceral than it has been, you know? And you had a perfectly pleasant time there. What? what no, yeah, I, yeah, I was with my girlfriend. Yeah, there's no, there's no, you know, there's no one staring at you for having a, a, a you know, a Russian girlfriend in Turkey. It's just whatever. They're they're much more modern than people. Think. I don't, I get, I don't understand why Spencer wants to commit genocide against them. Uh, maybe he doesn't anymore, but he's the great paradox. Really, he's the great paradox. I don't understand that man. And uh, what do you make of uh, this Russia-Ukraine crisis? Well, um, look, I think that um, I will just put, say this. I think that Russia has um, very um, compelling historical um, and contemporary foreign policy interests. Mm -hmm. I also think that... Uh, these interests do not come close to justifying any kind of invasion. And it would be tragic if it happened and it would alienate Russia from the world and confirm um, many of the negative stereotypes about Putin. And I hope it doesn't happen because I have, uh, I very much hope it doesn't happen because I, I consider myself somewhat of a defender of Russia. Now I haven't, I haven't defended Russian, Russia in print. I've certainly defended Russian history and the claim that, and argued against Sean McMeekin's absurd claim that Russia started the Second World War. But, um, you know, for those of us who have a more sympathetic line to the Kremlin, it would be a 
tragic episode, and it can be spun however you want, but um, this uh, the legitimate interests of Russia in that region with a very large population, especially in the East, that want to be part of Russia and consider themselves Russian. Absolutely. I think with uh, the large majority of the people in the country do not want to be part of Russia, though, despite the historical ties of Ukraine to Russia and the view of many uh, Russian, really probably almost all Russian nationalists. And again, a lot of people living in Ukraine with Ukrainian passports, that Ukraine is not a real country, right? Um, and also the, the legitimate concerns about um, buildups, uh, military buildups in Ukraine's candidacy for NATO. Um, I think it would be a tragedy for Russia if there was an invasion and it would damage Russia's standing in the world gravely and would lead to sanctions. And I hope they don't do it. And I I pray they don't do it because it'll it'll have implications for people I care about as well, honestly. And uh, how was your conversation with this denying history guy? You did a long, long video with him. Oh, it was it was great. It was a little bit. Um, <laughs> I think we should have had more specific subjects. We by we I mean me. I'm just denying my own responsibility since I set it up. But he's he's a brilliant guy. Uh, he is has an encyclopedic knowledge of a number of these historical genocides. I disagree with some of his views, but um, he's a compelling figure and a. Uh, just somebody who reads compulsively. Um, you know, I'm a PhD student at a prestigious school in history, and he knows <laughs> he knows more than I do about most of these historical tragedies. I kind of feel shamefaced throughout it. So I do recommend if you're interested in an online personality. He does have his own points of view, though, right? And it, I think I kind of uh, bring out his his views in that interview by challenging him on. What is your definition of genocide? Is why do you characterize this as a genocide? Are you be, just being a bit of a normie by characterizing that as a genocide, etc.? Um, but we certainly had a had a rigorous conversation too about Holocaust denial, where I think we both have quite a bit of knowledge. Um, yeah. So, is denying history uh, Amy Stanley? Is that who it is? Are uh, you talking about that literal person? Yes. I don't know who this is. Oh, okay. Um, I don't know who it is. Okay. Um, okay. This is, an, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know who it is. He's, he's actually rather coy about his identity. He clearly is a, is a highly literate man. Um, I don't know who he is. Okay. And uh, do you think the best team won the Super Bowl? Oh, you know, I... Well, the best team is obviously the Detroit Lions, and they were somehow not allowed to play, right? <laughs> That's my team. Um, I think of the two teams, yeah, the best team won. I do wonder whether the Bucks would have been the best team if Antonio Brown hadn't left. I feel I just I don't know if you had this feeling. I had the feeling that these are two very good teams, but they're not like up to the level of Chiefs Bucks last year in terms of the I think that was a blowout but in terms of the right. personnel and so forth did you feel that way yeah that makes sense I mean they're so deeply flawed both the Rams and the yeah. Bengals that it was hard, hard After to think played very poorly too and yeah. um I actually am uh, you know I this is more embarrassing than anything I've publicly said but I actually like I like as a Lions fan I like Jared Goff quite a bit and I, I I'm happy for for Stafford who had a very good year but I don't like all the ridicule Goff has gotten as a, as a response. I don't think it's fair. Goff played very poorly the first three quarters of the season with the Lions. He came on the last quarter of the year. 
um, with the development of St. Brown as a great slot receiver. Josh Reynolds was signed. DeAndre Swift. I think the Lions are going to be good next year. And I'm, I'm not saying they're going to win the division, but I think they'll be a serious team. Maybe around 500, maybe a little better. They got the offensive tackles there. They developed a great rookie wide receiver. They signed a good wide receiver. And the final quarter of the year was just a different team. Um, people don't remember it well, but um, Goff went 3-1 and one in his last four starts, including a blowout win over Arizona playoff team, trying to win the division. Um, win over Minnesota, who was, you know, a contender, right? So, and yeah, the Packers win. I mean, the, they rested their starters for half the game, but the first half they didn't rest their starters and the Lions were still winning. So, you know. What did, <coughs> what did Matt Stafford have that Jared Goff doesn't have? Like Stafford is a better quarterback than Goff. Yeah. I would never claim that Goff. I think Goff is a good quarterback. I, de- I defend Goff. And I think he'll surprise people next year. He isn't an elite quarterback. Um Stafford has, I think, more uh, a better arm than Goff. Um, I think Stafford is also less easily rattled than Goff. He is able to throw into tight corners more, whereas Goff, if if the windows are tight, he'll sometimes check it down too much, and that makes a big difference. If you look at um, Stafford's charisma with Cooper Cup, Goff had great charisma with him too, but it was just a different level with with Stafford. Um, and I'm happy for Stafford. I think Stafford is an elite quarterback and who played for a lot of bad teams and it's bad Lions teams and elevated them. And the fact that he never won a playoff game was held against him and certainly won't be anymore. Now you've got a book review coming up on aftermath life in the mm-hmm. fallout of the third Reich. This is a you know, highly rated, uh, awarded mm-hmm. new book. What, what's your reaction to this book? It's a very good book. It suffers from one uh, poisonous flaw the Zonderweg view, which we've talked about. He, he uncritically swallows the view that German... So this is a book about Germany in the immediate aftermath of the war. So the first 10 years of the war. Uh, pardon me, the first 10 years after the war. And he deserves great credit for talking about... For, for doing the unthinkable and talking about Nazis and ex-Nazis as human beings, which they were, of course. Right? Um, and... Um, trying to describe how this society, which more or less consciously engaged in genocide and war, a war of aggression, tried to um, tried to cope with that legacy and tried to survive and build a new, a new social order. And there are many interesting things in the book. One thing that, may, that didn't surprise me, I don't think will surprise you either, but would surprise the, the average reasonably educated reader is that the Holocaust was scarcely mentioned in the first 10 years after the war. Um, the Americans briefly there was a brief flurry of outrage and with the nuremberg trials and there you know we've seen famous videos and newspaper articles of you're guilty germans and people being dragged to camps this ended quite quickly the americans wanted to um who were of course occupying parts of what, what we now call, what we would later call west germany um the americans wa- didn't want to demoralize the germans too much they wanted to be a strong conservative um even nationalistic nation tamed but still not without nationalism and conservatism and 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 the military culture as a buffer against the soviet union right and you see a, cons- a fairly conservative society does emerge with um you know the adenauer regime and the christian democrats and so on and so the americans didn't want to emphasize this the uh russians did neither because the russians didn't want the war to be about the jews they wanted it to be about the great patriotic war and the suffering of the soviets so they didn't emphasize this in their propaganda. They were also occupying 
uh, East Germany, you know, what became the DDR. And so this wasn't emphasized in German culture either. That's an interesting thing. In German internal uh, dialogues or in the propaganda they were being fed by their occupiers. That's one interesting thing. Also sociologically, it's interesting that Germans were coping with the destruction of marriages. Women were cuckolding their men left and right because they realized, you, first of all, you lost, and second of all, your service wasn't honorable. So why should I show sexual fidelity to you? I mean, there was, if you look at women's magazines at the time, he mentions this, like adultery is in some sense celebrated. Men are treated with contempt. It isn't feminist. It's kind of contemptuous of men. And also women are starting to realize that they can do a lot of these jobs that seem ma that seem to be magically like manerzaha, you know, like yeah. male things, right? They can do a lot of this stuff because so many of their men are mentally crippled from the, serving in these crazy wars, you know, which they lost and then demoralized. They're not working or they're barely working and the women are working and they're realizing we can work. So it's kind of, um, I would say more anti-male than pro-feminist than feminist or anything like that. And kind of a way for the women to shirk their responsibility as well for supporting Hitler as so many did. Um, Cause they kind of wanted to blame the war on men. And there it was a kind of sexual experimentation, disintegration of marriages. This is the, I'm talking about the late forties now. Um, they're embracing like Western music, black music, jazz. There's also um, a, a big social disruptor is a lot of Germans as you probably know, as I'm sure you know, look, actually, I'll give you the credit for saying I'm sure you know, Germans were ethnically cleansed following the war. Um, not just German. So there are two types of Germans who were ethnically cleansed. First, Germans who, because of Hitler's cracked racial theories, they ethnically cleansed Poles from traditional Polish land. And they were so-called German settlers who went to like Zamosk. And, you know, I don't speak Polish, so I'm sure I'm saying this to be wrong, but they went to uh, traditional Polish land. So these people were ethnically cleansed, but also... Germans from East Prussia and traditional German areas in Poland and so forth, people who'd lived there, um, you know, for, for many, many, many generations were ethnically cleansed too, because they wanted to create um, a homogenous, homogenous Eastern European states without Germans, because the Germans were hated in Eastern Europe, obviously, as the invaders and slavers of these people. But still, you have innocent people who had, in many cases, nothing to do with Nazism, being ethnically cleansed from their traditional communities, and they were coming back to Germany. And this caused massive social disruption. <clears throat> you also had displaced persons. So like they enslaved a bunch of, not just Jews, but they enslaved a lot of Poles and other Eastern Europeans, Germans during the war. And these people were then released when the allies came. And some of them were repatriated. A lot of, hell of a lot of them were actually, but many of them couldn't be because the Germans had just destroyed, for example, they raised Warsaw. So if you're a Pole, many, many Poles had their houses destroyed, right? So the repatriation process still was undertaken, but it was slower because you needed to find housing for these people, right? And in the meantime, they, they were actually accommodated in Germany and sometimes with the homes of Germans, you know? So you had all of these foreigners in Germany at the time, which isn't really known, I don't think that well. And also newly arrived Germans who were often treated very badly. The ethnically cleansed Germans were... They were called Polacks or gypsies for some, these are Germans now who had arrived in Germany. Um, they were called, they were treated very badly by the Germans. So you had a bunch of social frictions, but this eventually leads to a the reestablishment of a conservative, mild, moderately nationalistic society by the 1950s, West Germany. Um, and also the establishment of, a, you know, a, an oppressive but stable East German regime. So it's kind of the story of these chaotic years leading up to the establishments of the uh, East, Western East German polities, which were 
you know, which were obviously different than this anarchic environment where marriages are disintegrating. All these foreigners are, and other new Germans are coming in and out. You know, you have occupiers running the show to a great extent, etc. Fascinating book, really, and debunks a lot of misconceptions I think people would be inclined to have about the era. Like, Germans were not, this is another dumb neo-Nazi narrative. Germans were not stewing in guilt over the Holocaust. To the extent that they felt guilt, it was over starting the war. The Holocaust was a marginal issue. It very seldom talked about. The big issue held against the Germans was you started this world war that killed tens of millions. That was the big issue held against them. Right. So the, the, the neo-Nazi view is that, um, first of all, they don't just say Germans, they say white people. They say the Holocaust was made up to, and then white people were so ashamed, so they stopped being nationalists. So no, that, that's just absurd. No, that's true. The Germans were not fixated on the Holocaust to the extent they felt guilty it was over starting the war. Okay, I have, a, I have a tangential point. So one of the lame arguments against the legitimacy of the 2020 American presidential vote is mm -hmm. that you don't see anyone who is enthusiastic for Joe Biden. But to mm -hmm. vote for Joe Biden, you didn't need to have any enthusiasm for him. You simply rationally had to prefer him to Donald Trump. And there's right. a 2% swing in the suburbs against Trump and towards Biden. But had, voting for Biden had nothing to do with loving Biden. Right. And the media like, said Trump was a neo-Nazi. So right. if you believe he's Hitler, right. then you're enthusiastic. Right. Of it. Right. If I believe Hitler were actually, right. I guess I'd have to be 30 IQ points lower, or maybe 70 to be, have a, you know, maybe I have to have a, a hundred, maybe I have to have like a 20 IQ. I don't know. Okay. Let me finish but, my point. Let me finish my well, point. So. Same too, most of the people who voted for the Nazis in Germany were not Nazis. They were voting because the situation, they voted for the Nazi party because it was the least likely to lead to civil war. It, it basically came down to two total parties. It was either Nazis or communists. If mm -hmm. the people had elected communists, the German army would have gone to war against that. The only way you could vote a party into power by the early 30s without a civil war was to vote for the Nazis. So most of the people who voted for the Nazis weren't Nazi. They were voting for the best of the alternatives as they saw them. So it, it just makes me think or wonder out loud how Nazi was Nazi Germany. It, it may have been a dedicated 5% of the population was able to Nazify Nazi Germany. Any thoughts? I, I think I think this is a brilliant question, Luke. I'm going to credit you for that. I'm going to first talk about the Nazi stuff, then we'll go back to the to go to the 2020 election. So, in 1933, you know when um, in, in the you have a large plurality voting for Nazis, never a majority. Certainly, most of these people are not anti-Semitic conspiracy theorists, hardcore ideological Nazis. In fact, the Nazis are suppressing this part of their propaganda in their public presentation because they know it isn't popular beyond like, you know, a, a small fringe. However, however, I think the, the point stands that they're willing to tolerate these elements because people knew what they were all about, right? The people who voted for them knew what they were all about and they were willing to tolerate it because they, they may not have had these weird theories about Jews running everything in the world, but they, they view Jews as, um, you know, less patriotic, as more left-wing, as somewhat subversive. Like it was a, a more, if you will, moderate and less intellectually ridiculous anti-Semitism, right? This kind of bourgeois anti-Semitism. So because they had the bourgeois anti-Semitism, they were willing to tolerate someone coming to power with the extreme anti-Semitism, if that makes sense, right? So it isn't, people voting for Hitler were not people who were, who were 
concerned about discrimination against Jews or, or people who were even viewed Jews as equal. They generally were anti-Semitic. They just weren't to nearly the extent Hitler was, right? Um, the other thing that's important is, again, going back to our conversation about fascism, and I would argue that, uh, I think, disagreeing with Godfrey, that Nazism is a very eclectic and extremely brutal form of fascism, but still kind of falls under the fascist tradition. I think that's debatable. Um, but I would differentiate it in the abstract, but I mean, I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a close call. I don't even know what I think of this, to be honest. Maybe I, I'm drinking and I'm being too declarative. So actually, let's, let's leave that aside. It's too complicated, but it certainly is related to fascism in the sense that it is a reaction against left-wing revolutionary movements. Let's leave aside whether it's fascism or not. Too complicated for drunk Matthew, but, um, it certainly is related insofar as it is a reaction against left-wing revolutionary movements. So you had a lot of fear among the property classes of uh, a communist <laughs> coming to power. And the bourgeois conservative parties were, were not viable. They did not have the popular energy of the Nazi state, right? So they voted for the viable anti-communist party, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And so if the viable non-communist party was something different, remember, they would have voted Hitler for that. did not win a majority. So he didn't come to power democratically. He had a large, he, he kind of did. He had a big democratic base of support, but he was appointed by Hindenburg, the German president, right? Who was, didn't like Hitler, was a, again, a bourgeois nationalistic conservative, didn't like vulgar anti-Semitism, actually intervened on behalf of Jewish war veterans. But he was, again, he's a perfect example. He's willing to allow this to happen. He is anti-Semitic, just not in as kooky a way, right? Um, in the way I described earlier. And he's willing to appoint Hitler because he sees Hitler as the only way to prevent a communist, um, the communists coming to power, right? Yeah. But, but, but eventually, Luke, I have to say, I, I, I completely disagree that I think through the propaganda apparatus of Goebbels, through indoctrination of the youth, through, through a, the institution of a, you know, what I would argue is a totalitarian, this is actually debatable, was Nazi Germany totalitarian before the war. <coughs> I would say it was. Um, it was totalitarian, but let's let's leave that aside for now. But through the institution, certainly of a, of a propagandistic society, and also through apparent victories of Hitler, right, culminating with the fall of France, but diplomatic victories, the Anschluss, right, the taking of the Sudetenland. Um, Hitler was surely one of the most popular leaders in Europe by 1940. Let's say surely, maybe the most popular. Well, not so, once they invaded Poland. Like Germany was quiet. Well, there was no Addition, mass yes, celebration correct. once they Quite invaded right. Poland. But after they won, after they won, they were happy. They won with, they, they, they appeared to have won the war uh, after they had defeated France. There's no viable way for Britain to defeat them. And remember, Russia is not in the war at this point, nor is America. So they appear to have won the war with relatively low casualties and won essentially their place under the sun, right? But at that point, Hitler was extraordinarily popular. No, and you're right at the beginning, when war broke out, there was not enthusiasm. It was quiet, right? Now, I've read books such uh, as... When uh, Hitler returned to France in 19... Pardon me. When Hitler returned to Germany after they signed the armistice with the French in 1940, the reception was ecstatic by all accounts, including foreign accounts that are not sympathetic to Hitler. So I think, I think there was a lot of support for the regime because it seemed to be working, if you will, you know? How many were hardcore Nazis is an interesting question. Um, 
what they, but again, these people knew their neighbors were being deported, their Jewish neighbors, right? During the war, they didn't do anything for the most part. Um, they also knew about the mass shooting in the East. That was, was widely known. Maybe they didn't know about gassing in the camps, but they knew about the mass shootings of Eastern Jews. And this was, you know, this, there was too many people who saw this for this to be suppressed, right? Whereas the gas chamber matter could be, could be suppressed. And actually there was more of a reason to do that because there was more sensitivity to the murder of, of Western European Jews than the Eastern Untermenschen, you know? And then did you want to say something about Joe Biden? Just because people vote for Joe Biden doesn't mean that. Yeah, I mean, it's like, look, John Kerry um, got very, I think it was for decades, the highest amount of Democratic turnout came out for John Kerry in 2004. It wasn't because John Kerry was so, Obama got a higher turnout in 2008, but actually lower in 2012. So it was a historically high level of turnout for Kerry in 2004. Is that because Kerry is so inspiring? No, it's because... People despise, on the left, despise George W. Bush, right? When I was a, right. a kid, I remember this. When I was like 13, I remember how much hatred there was for George W. Bush, you know? And that's why they came out, and, that, and they came out in 2020 because of hatred for Trump. And the widespread belief that he was some kind of proto-fascist. I mean, if, if you believe that, why wouldn't you vote against Trump if you're a regular American, you know? Leave aside with whether that belief is viable, intellectually viable, Suppose you believe that it makes perfect sense. You take, um, you know, 50 seconds to vote. So I was reading this book uh, called Not Born Yesterday, The Science of Who We Trust and What We Believe by a French neuroscientist, Hugo Mercier. And he presents evidence that all attempts at uh, mass persuasion, whether by religious leaders or politicians or advertisers, fail miserably and that the propaganda operations of a Nazi Germany or of communist states have also mm. failed to change hearts and minds. Uh, you thought that uh, Goering's propaganda operation was changing hearts and minds. Yeah. yeah so, so how sure are you? And what do you think of the idea that it doesn't change well, it hearts and minds? Be, I'm not mortally certain, mm-hmm. but you know, if you look at, reporters, foreign correspondents who are in Germany and, and you know, uh, uh, despise fascism. Most most mm-hmm. famously, William Shirer, you probably have heard of the right. Yes, of, of course. Them. Yes. Yeah. But I mean, the idea, the notion of Hitler's popularity following the fall of France was, I mean, universal. I mean, people, people said that there's widespread adoration, relief, and a sense that we're about to become a, a world power. Because, I mean, the Germans... If you were in a mainstream German social democrat or conservative, you hated the Treaty of Versailles. This was, you know, almost universal. And the, it appeared that Germany was kind of undoing, it, it certainly appeared that Germany was undoing the Treaty of Versailles following the fall of France. And also going to um, incorporate other German-speaking peoples into Germany and establish an empire. So, yeah, some people may have had moralistic objections, but those are kind of left-wing uh, ideologues. You know, liberal or liberal ideologues, the mainstream of society, the regular people saw Germany's winning, Germany's undoing its disgrace, Germany's wealthy, everything seems to be working, you know? And so it makes sense kind of intuitively, and it corresponds to what observers are saying at the time. Another another source of this is uh, the Reich Security Home Office had reports about public opinion in Germany. And this was a German source, but they reported by the end of the war that everyone fucking hates Hitler. 
They, yes. they were they, they were candid. <laughs> yeah. In 1940, they were, and they, in 1939, they were reporting apprehension about the outbreak of war, nervousness, uh, lack of enthusiasm. But 1940, after the fall of France, and also in other high periods, like after the Anschluss, uh, before the war, uh, or after the, the Sudetenland, they reported broad popularity, right? And broad appreciation for Hitler, you know? So... I think that the, the, you can never know if you don't have a scientific poll. You can never know where the capital K, what, what the consensus of people in society thought. But I think you can know with any reasonable doubt that Hitler was a highly popular leader in, in 1940. Curious, what does this book argue? What is its methodology? Why does it argue that uh, propaganda? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let me. I lo- this is the most influential <laughs> book I've read in years. And mm-hmm. I, I read several books a week. So it argues that we did not evolve to be gullible. That's, that's the essence of it. That if we were highly persuadable, that would, that would not be evolutionarily replicable. That evolution you know, programs us through natural selection to, to not be gullible. And so we may believe crazy things about space aliens or um, any it's particular Jews, right? theological belief, but that has no effect on how we make decisions in daily life. So when it comes to decisions in our daily life that, that have you know, repercussions on our life, we don't tend to be gullible. And that advertising and mass persuasion techniques, they, to the extent they work, they shore up and strengthen people who already hold those beliefs. And maybe they, they nudge some people on the margins, but that effectively mass persuasion techniques uh, don't work very much. Well, I think, look, my uh, I, I, this seems rather abstract. What I would say is people, the, the views of people evolve over time through a gradual process of socialization. People are not going to be persuaded uh, unless they're already, they're on the fence, right? right. They're not going to be persuaded by, so like, let's say a Holocaust denial debate, right? Yeah. No one, if, if the Holocaust, I mean, they're not, but let's hypothetically say the Holocaust denier had a brilliant argument that no one will be persuaded who believes in the Holocaust or more realistically, the person who believes in the history of the Holocaust demonstrates this clearly happened. The denier won't be persuaded. So people who have strong emotional commitments aren't going to abandon them overnight. On the spot conversions aren't a thing. But I think over time through socialization, through emotional alienation from certain sets of experiences or people associated with an ideology through social pressure that, and also through to some extent, the accumulating weight of thinking through something over time, the evidence not on the spot, but over time, I do think people can be persuaded and change their ideology. And I think that happened um, in two phases. I think from 1933 to 1940, uh, Germans went from, you know, being reluctantly um, willing to, bring Hitler to power uh, to stop the communists to broadly supportive of Hitler to, in 1944, 45, despising Hitler and basically being terrorized by the Nazi state into, into submission, you know, not, there was very little um, interest in Hitler's death, for example, by the Germans. You probably read this. When Hitler mm-hmm. died, like the soldiers were, were indifferent, like arms folded, you know, yeah. there was no... I mean, there were, of course, some diehards who committed suicide and women threw themselves out of the building. Of course, not most women, some fanatical Nazi women, but the vast majority of German society was not engaged with the Fuhrer at that point. Um, but I, I disagree with the thesis of that book. I think over time, 
um, we can change our views. Uh, but it's a, it's a complicated socialization process. I don't think pro- maybe propaganda isn't that effective though. I mean, that might be true. It, it may more more be socialization than pro- than propaganda. I don't think propaganda persuades people on the spot. Um, if, if it's intended to do that, it probably isn't very effective. So just thinking off the top of my head, something like same-sex marriage. So I assume that yeah, 20 years ago, yeah. most people were opposed to it. And now most people are fine with well, it. Not just most people were opposed to it. It was a fringe view in mm-hmm. 20, years, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, like for example, I mean, an interesting point on that is in 1992, uh, Bill Clinton, now the president who signed right. the Defense of Marriage Act, was considered a, a, a fairly radical in his in the in, in so far as he was willing to publicly advocate for gays shouldn't be um, uh, fired from their job for being gay and the, the civil rights for gays is a thing, right? He was considered quite, even though he was generally kind of a center right centrist Democrat, he was considered quite left on that, and that was <laughs> the Republicans uh, went on attacked him for it, right? Yeah. So and now, if you look at his legacy and you're kind of a contemporary liberal, you see him as quite anti-gay. So that's an example of where public opinion has changed radically. You know. So do you think do you think it's public opinions changed radically, or people are reacting to incentives and and suppressing what they really think? I think people's views change. I, 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 again, I don't think it's. I think it's a complicated process. It's gradual and does not involve much of or any really of of debating, if you will. Like I'm providing a rational argument, and you read a book, and you change your view. I think that doesn't. I think only intellectuals are susceptible to that, and even intellectuals aren't all that susceptible because we have our emotions and our pride and our vanity. Um, try to be susceptible, but even I am, am quite limited. And even you are quite limited. Even yes. the audience, you know, we're yes. talking about the smartest people in the world now, right? Yeah. We're quite yeah. limited. Yeah. So you started writing for the American Conservative in 2010, and then you didn't publish anything there for another 11 years. What happened? Well, I was actually an intern there. Um, and um, this is when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, um, I kind of just dropped out of – so I was – Actually, let me tell the story properly. I was a libertarian in college, one of those people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, quite obnoxiously libertarian in college. And at that time, TAC was oriented with the kind of right-wing libertarians, uh, the mm-hmm. Ron Paul movement, if you will. Yeah. That wasn't their only orientation, but that they were certainly one of the groups to which TAC was appealing. And those were my views then. So for ideological reasons, it seemed like a good fit. And I was a smart kid, so they took me on, even though I was... Uh, quite young. Um, I did most of my work there was <laughs> a lot of it was of a clerical matter, uh, like delivering mail and so forth. I uh, but I did get some good life advice and mentorship and writing from Daniel McCarthy. Are you familiar with him? A little bit. Yeah, he he now I think he writes for a conservative British publication that who's slipping my mind right now. And also Kara Hopkins, who is kind of funny because she's writing for a libertarian publication and she went on to join the FBI. She's now quite obscure. I don't, it'd be hard to find her name on the internet. You'd find her for rank for tax, but she was actually like one of these people that under the radar, everyone knew and watched. Well, she was friend, you know, she, she had breakfast every uh, morning with Ross that I remember. Oh, and back in the day, Ron Unz was our funder. So I talked to that guy all the time and I never thought he'd go completely. Wow. Wow. Yeah. You had no. 
because Pac was never oriented with, right. you know, like ex, like this kind of the views he promotes, like yes. conspiracy theories about Jews and yeah. Uh, and in fact, he wasn't oriented like that back in the day. I don't know what happened with him, but well, what's your theory? He, well, I mean, his stuff is is no nuts. <laughs> yeah, he's totally crazy. He publishes like Striker, I think, and yeah. <laughs> And Andrew England, but it's not even that. I can I can understand that, but the things that he publishes he's like a himself. He's man who, who has, a, I think, a doctor from Harvard. Yeah. I, was, I, I remember, I mean, again, I was a teenager, but I was intellectually quite intimidated yeah. um, by him. And I, I would have never thought, um, I actually delivered his article. Um, you know, this is funny. He wrote, he, well, he, it wasn't his article. Actually, he did write it. He wrote, either he wrote or commissioned, I, I'm going to say either or because I don't remember, he wrote or commissioned an article uh, questioning both, uh, questioning elements of John McCain's narrative about being a POW and also John, whether John McCain had done everything he needed to, had done everything to help POWs that were languishing in Vietnam, allegedly. Now, this is mm -hmm. disputed, of course. It was highly controversial. And it's, it was, I remember reading at the time thinking, you know, this is very controversial. It could be false, but this is serious work it's serious journalism the questions being posed are serious i actually handed it as a as a kid on on the capitol i handed the magazine to john mccain um and, and and he was he didn't see it but he was the cover story so i do remember that because because you, you know back in the day maybe now you can't with the with the um, um january 6th business but back in the day you could just troll around the capitol yeah. and if you were young you know people would often take an interest yeah. in you it sounds like i'm talking about like you know, period interest, but certainly McCain was just a, he was a, look, he's kind of a shit lib and so on in, in the broad sense of that term, but he was a, he was a friendly guy, right? He, he just saw me walking around with a bunch of magazines. He said, hi, you know, the other guy who said hi to me was Alan Grayson because they told me to distribute these because they wanted to get out the, the alleged truth that POWs, the disappearance of POWs had been covered up by McCain and other people. Um, but I remember handing McCain that magazine. And um, he he had trouble moving his arms because of his ordeal as a POW, but he he grabbed it, um, and moving his arms like vertically, you know. Um, did it, did any of the politicians sexually harass you? No, <laughs> certainly not. I just I just was joking about the purient because uh, there there has been a problem with that. I was I was a pretty good looking kid back then, though. So <laughs> you know. Um, I have to say, though, if, if I don't know, like, um, I, I don't want to repeat stories that I don't have any confirmation of. Uh, actually, that's not a good idea. Okay, that's, okay. That's, uh, I went, uh, I for went. me, I was doing nothing. Uh, the, the, the politicians I met, I met Ron Paul, of course, but that's, you know, he, he, we were like, he was like our guy. And then the other two I met were McCain and Grayson. Um, I don't remember interacting with any others, but I may have, and I can't remember. Grayson actually talked to me for a while because he read Pack. I remember that. I do remember Alan Grayson. You know, yes, yes, he was. He yeah, was. He was a, he was a lefty, wasn't he? He was like a paleo liberal. Yeah, like he was. He was one of those liberals in like the vein of Ralph Nader that that was, and like Bernie Sanders used to be. That was cool interacting with the politically incorrect right wingers. He was like cool, you know. But he's banned. <laughs> he seemed he a also, bit weird too. I mean, he's got. He was weird. Yeah, he was weird. He was really weird. Like the fact that he was talking, he talked to me for like half an hour. It was fucking. I got like. Yeah, that's bored. weird. <laughs> well, I mean, what, no, he was interested though in the POW issue, and he turned this into completely 
scurrilous, Luke, if you're going to that. That's completely baseless. He just was being weird and talking to me about issue. He wasn't like, what's your personal life? Yeah. He was, he was like, I hand him this magazine that we talked about, like, politics. And I'm, I, I'm a smart young person, so presumably it's interesting to him that a teenager has some body of knowledge. And, and he, I talked to him about eyeing the Federal Reserve. By the way, the the um, anti-Jewish conspiracy theorists, um, they have, that's actually a trouble point for them because he, he and Ron Paul were the people behind, they claim the, Jew, the Federal Reserve is like a Jewish plot or whatever. But he, Grayson, who was Jewish, and yes. Paul, of course, were the two principal people behind the move to the Federal Reserve. I remember that was a big deal back then. Uh, we were we thought like that would I mean because we were ideologically libertarian and thought that was a big deal. I don't really know what what came of that, but I believe the bill was passed. You know. So, so how would you describe your worldview today? Oh, I am just a. Conservative liberal. That's what I would say. Uh, I'm no longer libertarian. I, I discarded that many years ago. Um, actually, uh, with my uh, first girlfriend, we both uh, banded libertarianism. Um, first serious girlfriend. Um, you know, I had high school girlfriends. I'm cool. So, of course, I did. The first serious relationship, we abandoned um, libertarianism uh, together. Um, and... Um, then I bounced around through various ideologies, and now I'm kind of just conservative. I, I know I, I know with a, I, I guess to, to um, the woke, the rise of the woke stuff has made me realize how much I appreciate liberalism. You know, because they're so illiberal, they want to shut everything down, and it's made me realize how much I appreciate liberalism. But also made me realize the importance of institutions and some respect for. Traditional liberal institutions, and that's why, in the broad sense of characterize myself as a conservative liberal, um, because yeah. you need to classical to, liberal. To, You're a classical liberal. I, I'd say conservative. Like here's what I mean by that: I'm conservative in the sense that I want to go back to the free speech norms of the 1970s. I mean, that's half a century ago. That is conservative in the modern American context. I want to go back to the days. Where the liberal, I want, I'm a kind of liberal that thinks the Nazis have the right, or the anti-Semitic conspiracy theorists. It's very important to protect their right to speak. I'm that kind of liberal, and th these days that is a old-fashioned point of view, right? Very old-fashioned point of view. And he doesn't even have to be dignified with a with a philosophical pedigree like classical liberalism, evoking John Locke and John Stuart Mill. It's like, no, I want to go back to what people were on the left, uh, liberals were saying on the left that liberals were saying in the 1970s about free speech, right? Mm -hmm. And what do you like or dislike about living in England? Um, I hate the weather. Um, I'm used to, I haven't gotten any sun for, you probably, if you, if you compare my, my complexion with this video and the last one, you'll see the, the, the sad effects of that. Like, I haven't gotten any sun for, for many months. So that's grim. I hate the weather. There's something quaint and beautiful about London, though. And I, I, the architecture I don't find particularly striking, but there is something here. There is something beautiful here. And it's I, I'm not at the point where I'm able to articulate it in a compelling way, but this city has a soul and an identity in a way that many American cities do not. You can, you can feel history here. You can feel uh, history is speaking in a tone above and beyond 
what people are doing in the contemporary world. There is an identity here. There, I like the fact that I walk by schools that have been open, you know, since long before America was was conceived of. Even you know, right? You can feel history here. It's a historic uh, city. Um, I also like there still are old fashioned British intellectuals of a sort who I enjoy corresponding with. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, people who aren't, who have, who they have certain intellectual and humanistic traditions that are being kept alive through these geezers, let's say, you know, uh, despite the woke assault, which is very real here. It isn't as bad here as in America, I'll say. Uh, you have Nathan Kaufness. He was a doctoral student. If, he's, if, he had, if he had been in the States, he probably would have been expelled with stuff he wrote, right? He finished a doctorate in Oxford. So it is better here than in the States. I, I think I can say that with confidence, but it still is a, is a real power, right? And um, is there anything that you is, miss, miss about living in the States? I do. Um, I, miss, I miss the sun, for one. I miss my family, uh, my dog, my parents' dog. Um, I miss my grandpa quite a bit. Just opening up here, a little sauced. Um, but, you know, um, ultimately, I am glad to be here. And I, I feel like this, I, I need to be in Europe in the stage of my career. I think I'll keep going further east, actually. I think I'll, go, I'll be in continental Europe uh, when I finish my doctorate and be working there. In part because the woke, the further east you go, the weaker woke is. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's very strong in Britain, but it's weaker than in the States. And if you go like if you're in France and Germany, it gets a lot weaker. I mean, Germany has the whole Zunderweg stuff, but that's different than well, kind of. It's there. Yeah. It's a it's it's a different phenomenon. And then if you get to Eastern Europe, it's just zero. This doesn't exist. You know? and, and, and what about the American freedoms? Do you, do you miss miss freedom? Oh yeah, yeah. I really miss freedom, right? Yeah. I mean, oh, oh my goodness, you know. I mean, I love, look, I love the United States, but it's, it's been gravely damaged by this woke stuff. Look, I, I am a liberal. Call me a shitlib all you want, neo-Nazis, but I like a diverse country. I, I like the mixture of cultures. I think America is very interesting. I think that this notion of equity, this notion of political correctness and censorship has gravely damaged the United States, and I want to try to preserve it. And I think that the best way I could do that is as an intellectual who is insulated from the pressures of a totalitarian ideology which dominates American academia, which is to say a professor in France or Germany or Finland or maybe even fucking east of that. I mean, look, I, I need to have intellectual freedom. In the United States right now, you have a totalitarian ideology rules academia. I mean, it, it sounds high, like hyperbole. But it is, the United States is not a totalitarian country because there still is institutional freedom. The government doesn't lock you up. I would never claim that. I'd be way over the top. But the ideology that is preeminent in academia and in other, many other very important parts of the country, mainstream media institutions, for example, is totalitarian. And you can't be an intellectual in a totalitarian climate, uh, a serious intellectual, not what I aspire to be. So I, I love the United States. And I, you realize when you're gone how much you miss it. But there's also a sense of relief that I'm away from this craziness. This is insane. Like, they say you hate black people. And f fuck them for saying that. Like, look, African-Americans are a core part of the United States, period. And you cannot hate African-Americans and love America. You just can't. 
Like, it is so, it's again, we talk about history. They're tied up with American identity, period. Like, they are, are part of the story of the country, the music, the culture, it, period. It's just, you cannot, if you disavow them, you disavow the United States, essentially. But they say in the United States now, everything is construed as anti black hatred. Every, like, opinion. It is this bizarre trick that they play, and it's so effective. And it's creating a totalitarian society. And I find it quite tragic, and I hope the American people rise up against it. And I hope to play a small part in that, although I also want to be an intellectual historian. And to some extent, you have to set aside your biases, even against this totalitarian ideology, when you're writing history. And I, I, I would do that, but I despise this ideology, Luke. I mean, yes. I don't know. How do you deal with it? Do you have to deal with it? Yes, uh, of course. Um... I guess some days it probably affects me, but but generally speaking, Do you uh, lie all day or pretend you don't have a YouTube channel. What's your strategy? <clears throat> no, I I don't talk about my opinions where it's inappropriate, and I, I <laughs> so you know sometimes it's just not appropriate, and so I let people go. I mean, I have plenty of genuine conversations, so and I also have a YouTube channel and a blog, and so I have plenty of ways to express myself, but. Uh, um, uh, it, yeah, other, other times I just keep my mouth shut or, uh, you know, I don't, I'm 55. I'm not going to be out there fighting. I have no interest in arguing with people. So I don't choose to hang out with the woke. But when I have to interact with them, I'm just perfectly pleasant. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think strategy is, is interesting. And it, these, as I've com become more committed to fighting these people, you have to think of what is an effective strategy, right? Um, because of course I, I, look, I'm a utilitarian. I want to win. I don't care about, <laughs> you know, what the brave thing to do is, right. I want to do the smart thing and the effective thing. So I have to think about all these things and, you know, some are, some are friends, some are good people, right. They have, they, just because they've been poisoned by this totalitarian ideology doesn't mean I don't love their mothers. Right. Right. And you right. Know, there are so plenty you can't, of ways you, can't, you can connect. It's not all in the hate. Right? Yeah. Yeah, hate, I mean, is, hate is toxic. Hate is evil. You know, you, you, you're like the neo Nazis if you hate if you hate woke, right? Well, I mean, they hate they hate people, but you shouldn't hate anybody, really. That's actually a controversial view I have. I don't think even criminals, violent criminals, you should hate I, because I don't believe in free will. Um, I think they should be punished, maybe even executed if they're incorrigible. But I don't think I don't believe in like moral responsibility in a profound sense. I believe in it in a pragmatic sense. That's kind of neither here nor there. I wouldn't go on a tangent like this if we were, uh, if if I hadn't worked a bit um, sauced, you know. Yeah, well, it's really important to me to be happy, happy in a long term sense, not just in short term gratification. And so, for me, avoiding arguments and avoiding conflict and having the best possible relations I can have with everyone I interact with is of premium importance to me. So I want to get along with everyone to the extent that I can. And if someone's got, you know, hard left uh, ideology, I'll bond with them on sports or on culture or on literature or, or some, some area where we can bond. I would rather hang out with a left winger who's smart than a, a right winger who has my type of views but is 25 IQ points lower. Or literally 25 IQ. I mean, yeah. some of the right wing discourse sounds like people yeah. with 50 IQs. You know, I mean, my favorite newspapers, know, the New York Times. I don't Times. know how to deal with those people, Luke. But I think that to the extent that I want to participate in this 
uh, pushback against, well, it is difficult to to deal with people who think inoculation is poison and yeah. I don't really know what to do with that. And it's, another thing is they're obviously falling for a distraction from a totalitarian ideology that hates them. Yeah. And they're obsessed with the vaccine has Bill Gates in it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of, I, I feel bad. I feel, I feel bad for those people because the, the anti-vaxxers, you're talking about people with a need for meaning so extreme that they buy into crazy beliefs and other people have a need for extreming so 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 extreme that yeah. they become you know religious nuts or uh but they just need normal human connection once people have normal i know for me once i have normal human connection i'm fine when i don't have normal levels of human connection then i just go off on all sorts of odd tangents so it's a matter of like people's mm. nervous systems just calming down and then they don't have this this need for for you know extreme extreme amounts of meaning that that you know make sense of the, the crappy world around them because they're happy and they're building something the jew the jewish conspiracy theories i think are and we're speculating here because we can't know of course but but if if the audience will indulge me in speculation and I, i'm not the first to say this of course but i think that they are to some extent a w way of explaining the world right a mm -hmm. way of demystifying because you know human knowledge even for great geniuses and, and we're we're ants compared to the great you and i luke and right. everyone listening are, we're ants compared to the to the great geniuses who've made history work in a sense but you know almost everybody uh, our knowledge level is pretty pathetic right yes and and our knowledge of, of economic forces of social forces of what's going to happen that week and if you say it's the Jews, well, you've overcome an existential problem that human that is endemic to human beings, right? Yes. If you say it's the Jewish wire pullers who've made uh, society, who, who've reoriented society. For example, we talk about sexual mores radically changed, right? It just ra homosexuality is just a radical change in 30 years. Um, if you say that's the Jews, then... It's hard to explain why that is, because 30 years ago, is that world really that different? How can something go from being universally viewed as reprehensible? Even you have like a third of Americans want, I think, to criminalize homosexuality if you look at polls then, maybe even more than that. Um, but how do you go from that to 80, to most Alabamans want gay marriage now, right? How did that happen? <laughs> um, <laughs> Alabamans, for fucking Christ's sake. But... Um, we don't really know, right? We can have theories. We can, even if you study this for a living, you probably still have a ton of doubt. And yet the anti-Semitic explanation is comprehensive and, and internally as absurd as it is, it is internally consistent at some level, you know? Yeah. So it provides like a clean framework for understanding the world and why it has changed in ways that you don't care for, you know? So again, I speculate, but I, I speculate that the, part of the attraction of this, in addition to they get to LARP as the people in the Hugo Boss uniforms, and also get to position themselves as the as the most edgy of edgy, you know, because they're Nazis. And it's the, it's the intoxicating power of the magic key. So a lot of religious yeah, people believe that, you know, the magic key is that Jesus died for our sins. Right. Other people believe the magic key is that Jews Allah. are responsible for all evil in the world. Allah, Akbar, you know. Yeah, no. I mean, a lot of people believe in magic keys, and there aren't any magic keys. There are magic keys 
in very narrow circumstances. So for a quarterback, he may need to see where the safety is lined up. And that's mm-hmm. the magic key for where he's going to go with the ball. But well, even there, it may break down sometimes, right? But you could, you could, there are magic keys in certain limited situations, right? Mm-hmm. If, if I, if I look at someone, I can get a sense of what's going on with their physiology, whether they're in an intense place, whether they're in a happy place, whether they're in a sad place, whether they're in an angry place, right? I can get a magic key read on their physiology, but mm. uh, it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't tell me their bank account. <laughs> right, right. Okay, I'm going to wrap it up there. I got to move on with my sure. day. Well, can I ask you a couple of questions yes. for five minutes or yes. you got it right? No, no, I got, I got, I've got a few minutes. Okay. Okay. So I want to just ask about your father. Mm-hmm. So your father was a, was a prominent pastor in Australia, right? Yes. Yes. So how did this, I, I'm interested in two things. So were you, as someone who, who himself is, is rather spoiled, I must confess, were you spoiled by virtue of his growing up, by virtue of his financial, presumably financial success? And second of all, how did his fame impact your psyche? Okay, so my dad was, was never rich. So we mm-hmm. were always kind of lower middle class. Uh, oh, okay. Because I assume a- pastors are rich because I'm American, but go ahead. Yeah, Seventh-day Adventist pastors are not rich. Uh-huh. But I yeah. was spoiled in that my father had a lot of fans and uh-huh. and people who loved my father were, were good to me and kind to me and helped me. Uh, they like they take me to a football game. Uh, they'd mm-hmm. take me out to eat. They'd, uh, I mean, some people who've loved my father have donated to my show. And so I, I've been spoiled that way. And also... People who hated my father would frequently bend over backwards to be nice to me. So I got a lot of, a lot of spoiling from having a fa- famous, influential, and charismatic father. Mm-hmm. And so out of that, I tend to prefer the easy way out. I tend to try to get by with the least effort possible. I really like being spoiled. Uh, and I, if I can get away with cheating, I've, gotten away with cheating in the past. So it probably did not help the development of my character. Yeah. In terms of cheating, I have to say I had no compunction about cheating. I'm going to put this broad, vaguely. When I was much younger, when yeah. I started to develop a passion for, for academic work, then I, yeah. then I belatedly viewed cheating as reprehensible. But if I were to go talk to a teenager and condemn cheating, it would be high of hypocrisy. Um, one episode, actually, I and many of my friends, still this day friends, we broke in high school. We broke into the school and stole all the exams for the upcoming uh, semester. I didn't feel a, a whiff of guilt about it. <laughs> but I mean, I started like a weekly newsletter when I was fifteen, and I had no problem like soliciting my father's friends. And he hated that. He was ashamed and embarrassed by what I was doing. He didn't yeah. like it at all. But I was, I was brazen enough. Funny. To, to, to do that. You and, just use your contacts to get yeah, ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And Even so, yeah, I, I was quite happy to leverage has, everything that came with being Desmond Ford's son. <laughs> nice. Do you find that your, your Judaism has moderated your selfishness? Because um, I, I feel like I, my selfishness has been moderated by a number of influences, including my 
my current girlfriend who's a lovely human being, but, but do you feel, um, like your Judaism? No, it has not at all. There's one thing and one thing only, I think that moderates someone's selfishness is when they become happy. If you're a happy person, you naturally want to help other people. And when you're an unhappy person, all efforts to make yourself less selfish are not going to work. Happy people just naturally overflow with helping other people. So because I've become a fairly happy Mm. person the last few years, then I naturally volunteer and naturally help people out moderately. So I volunteer about 10 to 15 hours a week. And and that's natural and it's and it's very you know, fits fits congruent with with my life. But when I was an unhappy person, like forcing myself to do volunteer things and to help people out was just pure agony. Yeah. So this resonates with me so much that I'll let you go because I think it's time for you to run. But um when I was uh so I have uh OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, mm-hmm. and I now know how to treat it. Mm-hmm. So it used to be agonizing. So imagine, Luke, every, before it was treated. So imagine that every second, think of that unpleasant feeling where you're driving, I don't know if you drive, if you're driving, when you're driving down the road and you want to switch lanes and you're not sure, is there somebody in my blind side? Could I be hit? Yeah. It's yeah. an unpleasant feeling. Then you switch lanes and presumably it's fine and you don't care. Like if you, if you have severe OCD, you have that shit all day. It's yeah. like fucking torturous. And you get it treated and there are brilliant treatments called exposure response therapy, where basically you accept the fear, right? Mm-hmm. You come to accept, engage with and accept the fear instead of trying to argue with it, which is the, the natural instinct is no, this isn't actually a fear. My house isn't going to burn down, whatever, um, <laughs> you know, whatever the fear is. But, um, but since I've dealt with it and now it's, it doesn't really affect me that much because the therapy is so effective, I'm much less selfish i was just a selfish piece of shit that was just yeah. human excrement yeah um, when, I, when i when it wasn't free when i was just suffering i was just completely selfish so yeah and when you cure that and, and I, if you're a happy person now then you mm-hmm. naturally will spend some time helping other people that naturally flows mm-hmm. from being happy you don't find happy you know nastily selfish people like every happy person you know is helping other people on a fairly regular basis and it's not because they're not happy because they're helping others. They're helping others because that flows from happiness. And so that, a big component of my worldview is that psychology best answers psychological questions. Biology best answers biological questions. So someone's got OCD or narcissistic personality disorder, as, as I have had, then the, the best answers for these sort of things are not religion or they're things that come from you know, some sort of transformational, inner transformational work, psychological or um, 12 step or meditation well, or, or something like that. Go if you have to, but I'm going to ask one more question. Yeah. If you have to go, just say no, no, it's fine. I, I honestly don't care. Um, but I'm interested. So, um, do you think that uh, there's a level of narcissism that is, because like Richard Spencer, for example, how do we explain how somebody who is, who does have, and who, Nature has endowed this man with intellectual gifts, right? He's mm-hmm. read, and he also has read books. And he did this ridiculously stupid shit we talked about, like said ridiculous things and antisocial things. Do you think, yes. as someone with narcissist person, yes. do you think he, yes. the cause of that is narcissism? Okay. Yeah, or something like that. I, I think part of it, part of it is simply situational. There's a problem with the e-personality that once you go online and do what we're doing right now, people be inherently become more reckless, self, more self-involved. They have a more grandiose sense of their own abilities. They increase, lose touch with reality, and they will share dark things that they wouldn't normally share 
interpersonally, one-to-one. So these are the perils of the e-personality. I've suffered from it, and uh, Richard Spencer suffered from it. He was a bigger e-personality, and so the price that he has to pay for being a big e-personality has been much larger than me. So I think yeah. a lot of it, a lot of what ruined Richard Spencer is situational, that many people... I think it would be fascinating to interview him, because he isn't the typical... He, he did the neo-Nazi thing, to be mm-hmm. honest, he did. He, he Zig Heil, he, dog, he, he talked about the triumph, Trump's victory is a triumph of the will. <laughs> Come on, right? But he isn't stupid. So, so these things, I want to resolve the paradox, right? And maybe you could interview him, Luke. It'd be interesting. Yeah, I've interviewed him twice. Okay. I think you interviewed him respectfully. Yeah, I've because interviewed him twice. Just not. That's just, like, we, we made fun of him a bit, but we also complimented him. And no one wants to be mocked. So it would be interesting to do a respectable interview with him. I have interviewed him twice. Okay. okay. And, and carried on uh, private conversations. Since he, since he kind of like, collapsed, though, like, because... Now the right wing hates him, and, and basically he's universally labeled a neo-Nazi. Well, he's incredibly you know, resilient in that he's still putting his face out there. I, I know for me, when I have setbacks, it's very hard for me to come on and do a show. Mm-hmm. When I'm struggling with some things or dealing with some things, doing a show like this requires a certain brash confidence uh, bordering on yeah. recklessness. And so given the <laughs> amount of things that he's, he's gone through the past few years, it's amazing that he's still doing shows. But when we started our show today, he was doing another live show at, at the same time. So he it's it's a triumph of the will, Luke. It's yes, a triumph, triumph of the will. <laughs> triumph gets villains, yeah. All right, I should let you go. Okay, uh, Matt, good you. to talk to you. I wish talk you again. You. Thanks. Bye. Yes, bye-bye.